That is a pretty cool intro. Isn't it awesome? <laughs> yeah. JJ Boogie and my producer, whom you know, Bobby, collaborated on doing some retro I know JJ too. Oh, do you? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. How, how do you know him? Uh, from like LA, like industry, like All right. Hollywood circles. Yeah. The, well, the we're OA group. Yeah. Absolutely getting into that because. Everyone, obviously, I'm Monica Perez. This is Courtney Turner, whom you know from this show before and from all of her fantastic podcasts and all of the work she does. I mean, she is, uh, she's just with on the ground outreach. She's such a, um, a great researcher and intense thinker. She gets along with everybody. She just really took the podcasting world by storm. So what do I think when I run into someone like that? Is this chick legit? Where did she come from? Why did she just, how did she know how to do all these things and popped in out of nowhere? I've been doing this for like 12 years and I'm really not as uh, well known as she is. So let's, so I'm, I thought let's vet Courtney Turner. Let's see, <laughs> let's see what, where, how you got from there to here and if it mm -hmm. holds water as they mm, said. In my all right. <laughs> so, um, and I was a little nervous because I, I was like, mm, I might roll over a rock and not like what I see underneath it. I'm a little worried about that. But <laughs> uh, so I'm going to, I'll tell you about some of the things I kind of uncovered, but I want to hear your whole story. If you don't mind telling mm -hmm. a lot of people yeah, sure. know your backstory of your birth story and um, your disabilities, but let's start with that for people who don't know. Let's make this the definitive Courtney Turner about Courtney Turner. And then I want to hear everything. I want to hear your education, your job history, everything. Do you know any CIA agents? Because they're uh, everywhere. No, yeah. No, I really, I want to know about your birth, your um, education and your academic and your professional career. Okay. So, well, my birth story is, uh, you know, I came into this world with kind of unusual kind of circumstances. My mom was sick during first trimester of pregnancy. Um, so the story goes that she was diagnosed, uh, or actually she wasn't diagnosed, but my father uh, was very sick. He, they thought that he had contracted German measles. So this, this is how the story goes. He thought that he contracted it from my mom's OBGYN, who he was good friends with. They used to socialize, have dinner, play tennis together. And the wife had been traveling. She traveled and returned. She was very sick. She had been diagnosed with German measles. And then my dad got sick. He had like a fever of 104, was pretty delirious, and uh, in typical fashion, refused to go to the doctor or the hospital or anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, yeah, so he, about 10 days later, my mom noticed a rash on her upper chest, and she really didn't have any of the symptoms. Like, my father was very sick. She really didn't have much symptoms, um, but she knew she was pregnant, and so she went to have a titer tested, and the titer was tested at being 112. The doctor was dyslexic, so they think the titer was actually 121. However, when I was born, uh, the, the hospital was covering up because they knew that the doctor was dyslexic. What does that mean, a titer? So that's where they test the antibodies to see if you've been afflicted with the virus. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so. uh, yeah, so the cover-up of the hospital, I actually feel like I want to hear a little bit about that because I know 
in my circles, because my son is, uh, has down syndrome, we yeah. know a lot of kids who are, have disabilities. Right. And if I see a kid who looks absolutely hundred percent genetically typical and they have certain symptoms, one or the other, I think this may be a vax injury, or this may have been oxygen deprivation at birth, which is absolutely in my experience, never diagnosed. And I think that's because they just simply won't admit it. And they are in the habit of covering up for that kind of thing. I mean, maybe that's a hot sports opinion. I don't know, but I want to hear your opinion about the cover up. Yeah, well, that that's really interesting. I, I think because of the types of afflictions, I'm not so sure that it would have been oxygen deprivation because I feel like it, the, it's too early in the developmental phase. Uh, not for you. I'm talking yeah. about when they have it, when they deliver a baby, but they didn't get it out fast enough, like the shoulders oh, are yeah. too big and uh, they the kid is like has oxygen deprivation in the actual birthing process. I, I feel like they used to diagnose that back in the day and they just stopped. It's just like, yeah, as if no, it never I, happened. I, I agree. Actually, I, I think there are a lot of cerebral palsy cases that are a result of that. And that's often... actually what I think it is exclusively. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's so what I think I know, it is. I know yeah. someone with cerebral palsy. Um, he, uh, he was actually going to be in the, well, we'll get there, but in the film I was going to co-produce and star in um, that never got funded. And it was a whole scandal. It was pretty traumatic, actually. Um, but, well, it was devastated because I thought that I had raised $3 million to produce this film that was like my dream. It was like, it was my baby. Um, I mean, I went over to Europe to go and like fundraise and, you know. What I, was the name of that? Um, oh, my gosh. You don't have to tell me if you don't want to. No, no, I, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. Because uh, is... I saw a few things on IMDb that mm -hmm. suggested. No, 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 this never made it. Like right. I actually had gotten a letter from what I thought was uh, the, was it the, not the IRS, but it was like some government agency, which I later learned is totally bogus. You wouldn't get an email. Like, right. Months, right. It just doesn't work, doesn't work that way. But of course I was pretty naive and I was very like traumatized by it. I was like, oh my gosh, I got this letter and like, Basically, they were saying that the money couldn't be uh, transferred to the United States. But oh, so the reality is, is it was a scam. The whole thing was a scam. And what happened with the cerebral palsy? How does that tie in? So he was this this guy was supposed to play one of the leads in the film. It was a story about um, like a um, it was it was about a actor who goes blind and he's like a movie star and then he gets put into a a home and he falls in love with the the owner of the you know the institution essentially daughter and uh he falls in love with her and she's visually and hearing impaired like yeah she's essentially blind and deaf which so that that, so was that actually cool. you know yeah. given like love on the spectrum and all the things that are out now I think yeah. you have an audience for it. Maybe don't give up hope on that. But let's get back to what happened. Yes. The hospital covered up the problems. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so, I, they they were covering up. And when I was born, I was born on Super Bowl Sunday in the middle of a blizzard. And my dad was a huge football fan. He wanted to watch the game. <laughs> Not only did he want to watch the game, but he wanted his friend, the doctor, <laughs> to watch with him. So, they tried to – I was not arriving conveniently on time, and uh, I have never been punctual since. So, that <laughs> <is> a, yeah. <laughs> so I um, – yeah. So, they were trying to induce labor, and when they shot the epidural, I had already started to crown. So, my mom was tied up with a spinal headache for the first two weeks of my life. So, she couldn't, like, lift her head. She couldn't hold me. 
um, for the first two weeks. And when she could, she noticed the big thing she noticed was my eye. And she kept saying, like, she asked them to do all these tests. So essentially they were doing like the torch test and I never, I really should just look it up. I don't know what, you know, all of it stands for. I know T is for Turner syndrome. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I don't really remember what the rest of them are, but you know, it's like a bunch of different rubellas, obviously they are. Um, and they, they just kept denying that, you know, there was anything wrong. This was totally, totally fine. All the results were quote, unquote, normal. That could be a problem because some interventions, I don't know about back then, but now some interventions have to be implemented immediately. And also it helps you, like when my son was born and there was obviously something wrong with him, they didn't tell me it was Down syndrome for five days. But during that time, even though Down syndrome was the worst possible outcome, answer, I the uncertainty was actually worse. So when I got the diagnosis, I started to, you know, get, you know, assess my, my position right. and I could get back just, on my feet. It's the uncertainty is terrible. Yeah. Well, and then you can start to know what you can do. How are you going to prepare? How are you going to, you can start to cope, I think, yes. you know, but if you don't know, it's just this abyss of unknown. Yeah. So they, yeah. So they, she kept saying, they kept telling her it was normal. I mean, like one of the things was like, they were telling her that the, uh, you know, Billy Rubin was normal and, you know, it's supposed to be elevated and then normal. Mine was reversed. It was uh, normal and then elevated. So, you know, they were just doing like playing games and definitely doing cover up because they did suspect that the doctor was dyslexic and he had made his mistake. And it wasn't until I was a few months old, my mom's father. So my paternal grandfather had cataract and she said, you know, one of her eyes looks a lot like that. She kept asking why my eyes weren't focusing. And he said, baby's eyes don't focus. And she said, yeah, but one's rolling up in the top of her head <laughs> and the other one's looking straight at me. Right. So something's off, you know? And uh, yeah, so she suspected it looked a lot like her father. And she finally found a doctor who confirmed I was born with a cataract. So at three months old, they did a cataract removal. And they pulled the iris. They left debris. Yeah, don't get too gross because okay. I can't. It, stand it, this gross. isn't really. They just left debris, <laughs> and so they had to go back like a few weeks later and do what's called a retinal cleanup. But the retinal cleanup was where they found pigmentation behind the sighted eye, and that's when they had diagnosed me with the congenital rubella. So at that point, oh, they oh, had told my mom that I was going okay. to be completely blind, completely deaf, autistic, retarded. Oh. Um, that the best they could hope was to find a nice institution for me to spend my life. So what they actually told her, um, and I don't always share this part, but what they actually told her was that it's a shame that Geraldo did that expose and then they got rid of the institution because that would be the best place for her. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And actually, as much as I think that those institutions probably prevented a lot of abortions because yeah. there was a place to put people and now there isn't. Yeah. I also, in my research over the years of how to help my son, right. all the studies are like intensive therapies compared with these completely neglectful institutional circumstances. So yeah. I just dispensed with both of those and I just treated him like a normal baby. Yeah. And he's like the most high functioning kid with Down syndrome there is. But yeah. that demonstrated to me that really it was the institutions being extremely neglectful on a one on one basis. So it's really probably the last thing you need, would need to help a baby like sure. that. Sure. I do. Th yeah. I mean, there's definitely pros and cons. I think the institutions would be a great place for some of our, uh, you know, prisoners currently. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of them. Yeah. Instead of prison. Well, I, I think that they, 
a lot of them really have mental health or, yes. or real disabilities, like functional disabilities, and they'd be better suited in an environment where they can I, I have some sort of a facility to work with them rather than just shoving them in these jails that cost a fortune. And then they just release them. They, yes, they, they're they flooded and then they release them. It's a pathology. But I, I do want to say, as far as the institutions go, I actually yeah. don't want to throw them under the bus because my grandmother was raised in an orphanage. Um, my Catholic grandfather. Orphanage. Yeah. And I know other people like that. And actually, I know more. I, I, I think the vast majority of experiences were fine, if not good. Yeah. And then it's always like the stuff that's scandalous, that's used to promote one agenda or another. So whatever, that's a whole nother topic. But <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I'm happy to see that you were not institutionalized. Not but, institu but the other thing that I think is interesting is what would have happened if the guy, your doctor had not been dyslexic. It had not been what? Dyslexic. Well, so yeah, so the alternative, so my parents actually did sue for my birth. And it was called a wrongful birth case. And it was, I, I grew up in New Jersey and New Jersey was a very Catholic state. So abortion was not actually, uh, you know, very favorable at the time. Um, I don't remember what the laws were. I should look into that as well. But I think they might have actually had pretty strict laws against it. Back. I don't know at one point it changed. So, right. um, but I know that it was uh, unorthodox to have that kind of a, a legal case in New Jersey at that time. But it was considered a wrongful birth because the alternative would have been to abort me. And I and I have heard you say that you've you understand your parents' reasoning and yes. they gave you a wonderful childhood and it wasn't yeah. that they wish you were never born. And I'll I'll give a hat tip to that. But I will say that in my researching, mm -hmm. which I found the treasure trove of your thought journey in on your Facebook page, mm -hmm. one of the really moving, like it really choked me up was that an African woman, I believe a, a woman from Africa sent you a mm -hmm. picture of her little baby who was born with congenital rubella. And sadly, by the time I finished the post, I realized that that baby did not make it. And I understood then how serious this diagnosis is. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to well off with tears. I'm like, sorry. Was, I know no, it, was it, was okay. it was, it was very emotional for me. Yeah. Um, and this was, I, I think it was actually in 2020 that she reached out to me. So it was a, or it, might, it was either in 2019 or 2020, but either way, it was a weird time. Right. So, uh, the yeah. time when I started to connect with her was definitely in 2020, but I think she might've reached out a little before that. Um, but yeah, it's a, the, a lot of them do not fare well. So I understand. And no, I don't think my parents really thought I was wrongfully born. Or Wish that you weren't born. I can't right. imagine. Because right. I do want to hear about how they, I, I, I now I feel like I know enough about you and I want to talk <laughs> about your motives and stuff. But, but those years from you know, zero to 18 or whenever you took over your own self, right. they, I imagine either in a, you know, I, as the youngest of nine, a lot of my lessons are like, don't do what they're doing. So right. some things are negative. And then there's a lot of things where, you know, people bring you a, a little extra attention and, and a, just a very savvy approach. So how was it in your upbringing that contributed to your ability to overcome some of these challenges? So um, when I was, so I, at one years old was around when they filed this uh, lawsuit and that was also around the time I had heart surgery. So I had heart surgery when I was one years old, I was born with the patent ductus arteriosus. It's not a super, uh, like 
you know, detrimental kind of, of all heart conditions, it's a pretty minor one. It's just the valve that's open has to be closed. And it's not that actually that uncommon. It can be caused by a lot of other things. Um, and, you know, since I've gone down the whole, you know, rabbit hole of uh, viruses, I'm actually not convinced yeah, yeah. That, uh, that that's actually what happened to me. I think it's a convenient diagnosis. It's a convenient way to wrap a bunch of symptoms into a same package and, uh, you know, kind of give somebody a label and then maybe treat them based on these labels. But I mean, there's a lot of things. What happened to me is very obvious that my mom had something going on in first trimester. Uh, you know, the only symptom she really had was a rash. But, it, you know, a rash could be a yeah, that could have been a stress. It, it could have been like if it were in um like the folds yeah. like your armpits and your groin that's that can be scarlet fever which is untreated strep which can have serious cause serious damage to organs yes so, so it, I think my mother lost a kidney to strep I believe really wow yeah so she it, thinks years later she said I think the doctor was new and just needed some practice so I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, but she did live to 95 with one kidney. So look, I can do her voice. I was worried. That was that, great. That when she was gone, like I, her voice would go, but no. uh, we'll keep that alive. Yeah. So, so yes, um, I really want to know about your opinions about, um, cause I heard once in your like original opening, like this is me on your podcast. Uh, you have a mm -hmm. video on your website where I, or some other context where you said, neither of my parents were vaccinated. And then, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, this whole story rely relies on some contagion and you have expressed skepticism about the official narrative about contagion. So let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that too. Yeah. So I mean, there are a lot of things. Strep could cause it. I mean, really a trauma could cause it. Uh, a toxin could cause the rash, right? That's the only symptom that she really had. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't claim to have the right. answer. I don't know that I necessarily will ever have the answer to that. That's like a pretty hard thing to unravel, no matter how much I would try to investigate. But it does seem something happened in first trimester. When you look at my symptoms, so I blind one eye. I, it's actually a microthalmic eye. Um, so that's a whole nother like journey because I ended up, I had, you know, two strabismus. I had four ptosis. Ptosis is where they lift the lid because the lid was drooping. Um, strabismus is to help align the muscles so that it wasn't just wandering all over the place. Um, I had, a, I ended up having an oculoplasty because the lid just never, I, typically ptosis don't last very long and does end up just drooping again. Um, so I did do that. I ended up doing, I had five glaucoma procedures. Um, I had an iris implant put in and uh, that was a pretty traumatic procedure. And is this in, in childhood or are you talking about in so your It was throughout, so all, all of this was up until um, maybe... Uh, the age of uh, like up until 18, I guess I had, but a lot of them were in childhood. I mean, I had the cataract removal of three months and then I had the, you know, retinal cleanup a few weeks later. Um, and then I had uh, the strabismus through the ages of like, you know, four to eight uh, and the ptosis were all around the, you know, those years as well. Glaucoma procedures. I had the first, I was first diagnosed when I was nine. Uh, and then I had the last one in high school. Oh, you had glaucoma also? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have a, so you have a, like a, a body of symptoms. 
Exactly. That may, I mean, I can definitely see like AIDS. My brother supposedly died of AIDS and Mm -hmm. he and my mother and I all think it was AZT poisoning, but they're, they're just, no matter which path you go, these are bodies of symptoms that may originate from the same thing, whether it's exposure to a toxin or radiation or vitamin deficiency. If you have multiple, you know, if you have cellular damage, it can affect a whole host of different systems. So actually what in the Sam Hill podcast is asking, I wonder so much about vitamin deficiencies. I suffer from magnesium deficiency, which I do too. That manifests as a rash sometimes. I've never had that. And it causes a placental malformation. And that happened with my first child because I didn't know. And I know Courtney that you have done so much work on health and natural medicine. So I think this is an okay question to ask you. Yeah. I, I've never heard that actually uh, about magnesium causing placental uh, malformation, but that makes perfect sense. What? It absolutely causes reproductive problems, which I experienced that myself. I, yeah. Okay. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. And it's like blood related. I could see that being- No, I'm not surprised at all. And yeah. a lot of people are magnesium deficient. Um, yes. And more now than ever. Yeah. Yep. Heart uh, palpitations and stuff. It's, it solved so many of my problems when I started. And the doctor, of course, was like, no. <laughs> But the tech was like, oh, you have to take magnesium. I was like, oh, I was, but then I stopped. And she's like, yeah, start. And then everything went away. And then you felt better. Totally, 100%. So, and I don't really, I'm not a huge fan of like taking something every single day. Like I worry a little bit that Mm -hmm. they don't, you know, you just, and I definitely get that from my mother. So I'll stop and I'll start and I'll stop and stop, but I'm aware of what's going on. And I try Mm -hmm. to like listen to my body. Yeah. But yeah, so you, so now you're not, uh, and your comments about neither of your parents being vaccinated, do you still think that's relevant in any way? Or you actually No, I, I don't actually think it's relevant at all because I, I really don't think that that's what happened. Uh, so what I was saying is that these collection of symptoms, so I'm hearing impaired. I learned how to speak by reading lips, so I didn't get hearing aids until I was almost six years old. And uh, that was, you know, but that, at that point we figured out that I was significantly hearing impaired, you know, pretty um, like right on the border of moderate severe. So. I wonder what that did for your brain development. Like your brain was, was just chugging along for sure. And it wasn't yeah. using a lot of the auditory and visual, visual input. Stimuli. I had a pass w- over my sighted eye every other yeah. day of my childhood. So I was essentially blind and deaf every other day of my childhood. Yeah. And I, and it doesn't mean that your brain is not still developing. And I wonder if that's what contributes to your, in addition to your healthy lifestyle, to your <laughs> just mile a minute brain. I, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I definitely had a very, like, I had a very vivid inner world. (laughs) I had a very strong imagination and they, they put me at the Roosevelt Institute, which was like one of the last rubella clinics, you know, at that time it was kind of that in between modern technology, uh, you know, there just wasn't an issue really anymore. So there weren't many left, but we went to the Roosevelt Institute, which was in New York city and, uh, you know, everybody was telling my mom that I was going to be completely autistic, retarded. And, you know, I had hypotonic limbs, so they didn't think I was going to, you know, be very mobile either. Um, oh, my yeah. gosh. I have to tell you. So when I was looking into some stuff yesterday, just to make sure I knew everything there was out there about <laughs> you, the most recent tweet was like, you deadlifting like 215 pounds. I was like, what? Like, I've met you. You are tiny. Like I just, I was blown. I was like, this chick can do it all. And then I, you know, when I went back, I realized like that is part of your origin story. And I mean, I'm just amazed because also my son who has Down syndrome, they're notorious for that. 
and yeah. it results in weight problems and other things. So we're super inspired. I just got him a personal trainer and I'm going to, you know, c- go down your path. I'm really, truly inspired. Oh, I'm so honored. Oh, yeah, Thank definitely. you. That's yes. awesome. You yeah. should, I'll send you a link. Uh, she's on Instagram, but it's a, uh, uh, Showtime Warner, I think is the handle, but she's a Down syndrome girl who is like a Special Olympics gymnast. And she's oh, amazing. I didn't even know that. She's I'm really amazing. not as in touch with media as you would think. But yeah, uh, yeah send it because Luke. Yeah, she's not super to, I'm not supposed to dox him. But he, uh, he absolutely gets hugely inspired by people's other people's stories and you know he likes loves the limelight if he sees it's on a youtube video or whatever he's like oh i can do that too so all right so you were hypotonic yeah i was hypotonic and uh yeah like graphic finding graphic motor impairment uh which still actually impacts me when i write i write very slowly um but yeah, hand-eye coordination, not so much my thing. But yeah, so it's all these symptoms that do seem to fall into that category. So they really were just very, the prognosis was very dismal. And they kept telling my mom there was really no hope. But at the Roosevelt Institute, one of the reasons I think they thought I was going to be autistic was I was doing a lot of, and yeah, the, I think that was why they, that, that label, but I was doing a lot of mimicking and a lot of hand gesturing. And when I look at the pictures, it's so obvious to me that I'm like trying to figure out why is this I see and this I doesn't. You know, a lot of what I do mm-hmm. is holding objects near mm-hmm. and far, um, but they thought that was very strange behavior. And then uh, I did a lot of mimicking because I learned how to speak by reading lips. So I would watch somebody and then I would repeat what they were doing. And, you know, that included the hand gestures or whatever it might be. So, you know, it seemed, I'm sure it seemed a little strange, but when you look at it, knowing what I was dealing with, it's kind of obvious also. So, um, but so uh, what were you going to say? Down syndrome also, they have terrible speech impairments. And that was the one thing I was super worried about because I'm so verbal. Right. And I had learned that, I believe I learned, I, I, I definitely learned this and I think it's true that if you repeat back to a baby what it's saying or doing, yeah. it it's reinforces that the baby's like, okay, that is what I'm doing. So right. if he would say like goo goo gaga, I'd say goo goo gaga, or like touch his teeth or whatever, like I would try to mirror and reflect to reinforce that yeah. brain motor connection. Yeah. And he's, I, I think- he's a fantastic, he is, I, oh, you were going to meet him that time. But I know, I'm so glad. Oh, we'll absolutely. We'll back out. Yeah. You're going to love him. <laughs> I, I can't wait. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. So, so yeah. So when I was at this Roosevelt clinic, um, I, the, I, so I did a lot of this mimicking, but I was also, I would create worlds. So like I created something called bubble land where, you know, only my closest friends could be invited in and you had to be invited to get to bubble land. And we spoke gibberish, but somehow we understood <laughs> each other perfectly. Um, and I think it's because children are masters of improv, you know, it's like, yes, and that's the first rule of improv. Yes, and you can never say no, but or why, or it's just yes, and and they go with it. And so you you understand each other because you, I mean, wasn't super high complex language anyway. So kind of knew what the other person was saying. And I did a lot of that sort of just, pl- I mean, I think kids do in general, but they play pretend, but I didn't just play pretend. I created worlds and I invited people into them. And so they told my mom that uh, I was going to be totally fine. And she really, why? Nobody's saying that. And they said, because she has a very vivid imagination and I, that people are misinterpreting it as her uh, being, you know, 
they're diagnosing all these and projecting all these labels onto it. But what it is, is it's her coping mechanism because she realizes that she cannot be immersed in the mainstream world. Like she doesn't fit in. So she's creating parallel worlds to try and bridge the gap so that she can learn in that world and be able to transfer that into the mainstream. I also think that, uh, so that is a big problem with my son. He does not really have an inner world. He just is mm -hmm. low IQ. Right. So, so, but what you were doing now, I, and I always, so he's super, super engaged with physical things. Like if he gets mm -hmm. bored, he will literally pull a bookcase down. Or, I mean, he used to, like he would just break right. glasses, like to hear the sounds, <laughs> but, um, Whereas I myself could sit in a room for four hours and absolutely just stare at a wall. And there's just a lot going on in my head. I love long car rides, like stuff like that. And I feel like what you were doing was super stimulating your brain, even though you didn't have a lot of stimulus. And I will give a little tip that my mom, who was absolutely sharp as a tack until two days before she died, I mean, absolutely sharp, 95 years old. And I had a friend uh, the mother of a friend was losing her memory a little bit. And my mother said, you need to tell her to start following the horses, start following the horses because that keeps your mind going. So my mother who can called herself a potted plant, like, I just sit here. I'm just a potted plant. And, but she kept super, super sharp mentally because right. she would follow the horses. And I mean, even maybe a couple of days before she died, she had her little iPad, which she learned how to use just to go to OTB and off track betting. And right. she, she, and I don't know if the science will, you know, quote science will bear mm. that out about Alzheimer's or memory or if mm. exercise works, but I am my observation. And, and as oh, she I used to say, use it or lose it. And, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of this contributes to your unique way of thinking. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure it does. But yeah, that's what I, but it's interesting you say that uh, he was very physical. He would grab things. So I, I definitely had both. Um, my parents actually lock, would lock me in my room uh, as a kid. And I like, I mean, I hated it. Like, oh. I mean, hated it. And uh, I actually had a, a babysitter who had a locksmith come and switch the lock so they could not lock me in my room. Oh. Um, yeah, one day they were gone, which was very rare for them both to be gone, but she did do that. And I was so happy. Oh, wow. But I talked to my mom about it and she said that it was because I was very, uh, I was very active and I would tear things apart and uh, that they were worried. My dad was really concerned that I was going to hurt myself or something. Yeah, else, it was safety. So. I, I had to do yeah. some of that with Luke, not like restrain him but at mm -hmm. night when he was sleeping i had to put a lock and the fire department was like i called the fire department I was like is this okay and they said well we'll get him out and i said and I, yeah. I would get him out and they're like yes sure. I mean, we can't tell you it's okay but he was he would get out on the street in the oh. middle of the night yeah oh yeah and, and it's wow. not like he knew how to cry still doesn't know how to cross the street so right. yeah i had to do it but yes i understand what so I, I had both i had a very vivid inner world for sure and i mean i i was always daydreaming in fact um, they had, when I was in nursery school, they asked my mom to, uh, if I wanted to skip a grade and uh, my mom wow. said no, because she said that we were, we had like lots of family members who skipped grades and never were in school. My great grandparents, like they, they just 
I think my great grandmother skipped sixth grade. So like, so she just didn't do school. And my mom was like, we're not doing that. Right. So, and then they, I guess, got very bitter about it. I, I remember this conversation. I was like in the car with my mom. She's like, yeah. Then they said, well, it's fine. She spends all her time staring out the window anyway. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's <not> <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> just staring out the window. I, think well, I probably so. was bored. I mean, I couldn't really hear. I couldn't see what was going on. I'm like, what's going yeah, on here? Thinking. It's way more interesting. You were thinking. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's, so what, when was the Roosevelt Institute? How old were you? You were, I, was, I think I was around two. Yeah. Wow. I, pretty, I did. A, yeah. I mean, I was, so in some ways I was very ahead in some ways I was very behind, obviously. Um, but I mean, I was reading full books at two. Giving somebody confidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a difference that makes to tell them, to tell your parents that there was no hope versus to tell them that there was hope. I mean, I can just see it yeah. in my own life. Like if you know something somewhere, you will find it. If you yeah. think it's not there, you will not find it. Like true. that's just like physically true. And I think it's true in, in everything. It's just amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And one of the things my parents did do, my, you know, they were looking for ways to encouraged me to do, I mean, I was spending like two hours a day doing these eye exercises and all sorts of like hand-eye coordination type neurostimuli type work. I know. And I mostly <laughs> did it with a patch over my eyes. It was very frustrating. Um, I, in nursery school, I, I actually had a boyfriend in nursery school and his job was to help me rip off my patch because I couldn't <laughs> do it by myself. <laughs> Um, nice so, utilization of resources. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I, I recruited some assistance. Yeah. It was very, very frustrating. But my mom said that, you know, I think, and you can probably relate to this, you know, because you have kids, but she said you she would look at like what would motivate me. And it, she said, you know, sometimes they like, you know, they'll give kids, you know, cookies or like a present or, and she said, for me, I was very uh, motivated by the accomplishment. So, and she reinforced that. So they would give me challenges. uh, And one of the ones, and I've told this story a lot, but this is probably why I fell in love with gymnastics because uh, they, my mom had this idea to build a beam and, you know, again, I did not get hearing aids, so I was almost six years old. So I was essentially blind and deaf because I had a patch over my eye every other day of my childhood and I didn't have hearing aids. So she would have, my grandfather actually built the beam and I would walk on the beam for, and if I completed it for a week, whether I had the patch on or not, my reward would be that they would make the beam narrower. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they would give me a new challenge. Yeah, you can yeah. see this in your life today that just the achievement itself is must mm-hmm. be rewarding for you because you just never stop. And I would not call you an overachiever because you are definitely capable of accomplishing everything you have, but I would call you a hyperachiever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I hate that expression overachiever. And you meet an overachiever once in a while. Like they just, they study 10 times as much as like any normal person so that they can get, you know, grades higher than it's worth getting. Yes. But, but just get it, you know, doing your best, I think is uh, quite an achievement for anyone. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And I think people should. So I'm a huge proponent of this is why like, you know, what I, before I started this, what I was doing was doing, I would do the aerial performances, but I would share my birth story and I would talk about movement as a metaphor for life and talk about ways that people can use physical training to help them overcome adversity in other areas of life. And one of the reasons is because it's a, it's such a tangible, concrete challenge. And there's something I feel like and when I was a trainer, I saw this so, so often. It's like, no matter how, where somebody starts from, you know, or what their goals are, just that idea of completing even the session 
it's such a sense of accomplishment for people that it really was very empowering. And then when they were able to do things that they didn't think they could do, but that they just steadily, you know, the consistency and they got there, it's so empowering. It, it makes you feel like, okay, I can take on other challenges. And so that I think was something that was really instilled, you know, it was a combination of uh, personality. The other thing they did uh, that I'm, I think was invaluable. And this was my baby nurse who came up with this idea. But because I was hypotonic, she suggested putting me in a wet sandbox. And apparently this is a very old school orthopedic, uh, you know, no, uh, occupational therapy technique. And uh, so she put me in a wet sandbox. She said, kids love sand. They love, you know, the wet sand will create more resistance. And she said she could see I had a really determined personality. So she said, I bet if we just put the toys slightly out of reach, it'll force her to reach for them. And then, you know, that would create some sort of neuromuscular stimuli, eventually lead to some coordination and hopefully hypertrophy. When I look at the things that you can do, it's just uh, astonishing to me that you had any disability at all going into that. I mean, you're achieving things that that typical people just, I mean, one in a million really does stuff like that. Like that's that, you know, when I see pictures of you, like, holding your entire body up with one hand and like you love the pegboard and yeah. uh, you know that it's just it's just really and the weights that you can lift it's just amazing so but that can't have been I mean you didn't go to college for kinesiology right yeah. some, what, what did you do so did were you did you do sports in high school were you yeah I did then? gymnastics um so I did uh so when I was younger, I did like all the umbrella, like individual sports. So I did horseback riding, skiing, snow skiing, uh, dance, gymnastics, ice skating. Uh, did your mother really help you with all that or were you self-motivated? Um, I mean, she definitely took me to. She paid you know, for it probably. Right, she paid for it. Um, and my dad actually did most of the driving to the things. But um, nice. yeah. But uh, my you mom have was, siblings or were they dedicated? You have a younger sister. To you. okay. She's six years younger. So Did she get I, the short end of the stick? Was she like, oh, you can walk to school. I got to deal with Courtney. She feels that way. I, I really don't think that's true. I think that I, I really don't think that's true. She does feel that way. She will tell you that. <laughs> so, yeah, my kids sometimes say like, it's such a whatever him centered house. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> You're fine. They're fine. They're, they're, they're. She has a few challenges in that yeah. regard. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Everybody has challenges, but yes. you know, physically she, yeah. she, did well. So it's easy, easy um, to externalize these natural feelings, which is why I really feel like race is used as a weapon against adolescents because yeah. they externalize. They're like, oh, your hair looks different from this commercial. That's right. an external thing telling you that something about you isn't good enough. And right. it's because of your identity. And I'm like, no, it's the insecurity of being a 15 year old girl. We all have it. Like this is, you know, and I, I feel like it's, there's a push to externalize things because for policy reasons or even consumerism, whatever, totally. it's confusing. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things I was, re you know, I was doing Tavistock research the other day and they, they were actually talking about that. And they said they particularly targeted women because uh, it was so easy to play on their insecurities uh, for marketing purposes. Well, forewarned yeah. is forearmed. Let's spread the word on that. Of course <laughs> you were looking into Tavistock. Of course you were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, so, I was okay. Yeah. So what, so, okay. So take us to the kind of end of that, where you start going to 
Yeah, anything so else I did, you want to say about your youth did, and then yeah so college. I did you know so I, when I was in when I went into high school my parents told me I had to choose between figure skating and the gymnastics I also do roller skating I used to do partner like it was like dancing with the stars but on roller skates and I used Fun. to perform every weekend it was awesome I loved it uh, but I had to choose and so I chose gymnastics because my high school had a gymnastics team they actually didn't have one my senior year when I was voted captain um, because they gave the money to the basketball team uh, oh. but that's okay <laughs> yeah well, it is New Jersey <laughs> yeah so <laughs> um, but yeah I did so I did do sports growing up but I did not go to college for um, sports. I okay. went to a very small liberal arts school that had no sports. I did try uh, rowing, and oh, I, I rowed. Yeah, did you? Did you? Yeah. yeah. I so I was so excited. I did the whole like three month training with them, and then they informed me on the like a week before we're about to start the season because you know there's preseason uh, that I was going to be the cox. Of course Cox's. you were because you're tiny, and you I was like, told you that in advance. Well, and I, I wouldn't have done it because I can't cox. I was like, I can't give commands if I can't wear my hearing aids. And I, the risk of them getting wet is too great in, you know, getting in and out of the yeah, water. That's, so. that's how I knew Lori Lachlan's story when they were trying to get her on that varsity blues that her daughter was being recruited to the crew team. She was, she's a hundred pounds. I was like, she wasn't recruited to the crew team. They asked her to be a cox. This is a complete lie. And it was, the whole thing was a lie. The whole thing the whole unraveled thing. when I saw how tiny that girl was. But, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> I... So, I you know, <laughs> I transferred to Harvard as a junior from community college, and yeah. I did not realize like the real world was much much harder than anything I had ever had to you know go to public school and everything. I always it was easy to get A's and everything, right. so I was like, oh, I'm going to do everything. So I took Japanese, I joined the crew team, and by the end of the first year, I had gotten my first C's ever. The crew team was like, you you're you're way too old to be starting this sport. The coach had had to take a couple months off to coach the winter Olympics. you know. <laughs> and uh, I moved steadily back in the boat, but it was a really great, like I still have an erg, like it was a very cool, uh, you know, all body exercise. Yeah. I liked the training um, yeah. and they make the Cox train, the coxswains train yeah. team for like team building and all of that. You would have been so. a great Cox because uh, the difference between my performance when we had a really good Cox, I could have actually stayed on the team the way she would like <laughs> yell at you. And I have uh, to say one last thing. I, I did not want to yeah. dominate at all, but there, I remember when, when that coach was at the Olympics and the sub coach was there, she liked, I could take command. So she actually thought I was going to make it. And she had me at the front of the boat and she would like, we'd be out on the river and she'd be telling me to do stuff. And then the other coach came back. And after a couple of days, she never criticized me at all. And then I was out and I realized in retrospect, if someone's giving you advice and criticism and stuff, it's because they think you can do it. It's when yeah, someone is They wouldn't waste the time otherwise. Yeah. yeah. So as a parent, like I, I tell my kids, like, I'm only telling you because you can do it. You know, it's good for you, whatever, but you, you'll, you should be worried when I stop bitching. At you. Exactly. Yeah. No, I did. I also did. Uh, I joined the diving team, but the, Ooh. uh, yeah, but then my mom found out and then my doctor found out. My doctor apparently like called the coach behind my back and had me kicked off because they thought it was a potential risk for my ears, my eye. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I get, right. but I kind of wish they had talked to me about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I love diving because it was like now it was basically gymnastics, but working with gravity instead of against it. So I was like, this is awesome. Mm. Like, you know, 
yeah. But so, so in college, yeah. then you were just it was just academic. So what was just your academic. major? Can you share that? Yeah. So I started out as a neuroscience major, and then I switched to philosophy. So I started in neuroscience because I had done 285 PhDs in high school in dream analysis. So I was very like autodidactic, which makes sense. Just my whole, Mm -hmm. you know, beginning. Hearing problems. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So all all of the issues I was dealing with. So I, if I was interested in something, I took a lot of initiative and I did a lot of research projects in high school. I actually did an independent study in philosophy in high school. Um, You know, my ninth grade term paper was on the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, I did, nice. a, yeah, I did a, a paper on Socrates for English class, and my high, my high school actually published it. Um, so then I wow, proposed, yeah. <laughs> so I was very interested in that sort of thing all the time, like from really early childhood, because at, when, in my early childhood, I was very fascinated with the Greek Greek mythology. And I think that lent itself to then I became interested in Greek philosophy. But Well, that's why in the here and now your podcast. So I was I'm always surprised when I think of your origin as, um, you know, being in the public eye is about mm-hmm. health and uh, mm-hmm. fitness and movement right. because you're I, I you know, I, I'm good at analysis. Mm-hmm. Like I'm good at news analysis. I'm good at connecting dots and everything. Yeah. But what you're good at is something that eludes me. And I realize now it's because I don't have the training and knowledge. Like analysis is a skill, but philosophy, like you, you know, there's a whole, like there, there are like philosophers who are known for a thought. There's you know, however many Mm -hmm. philosophers, we can't reinvent that. I can't just figure it out by looking at this problem. Like what are all the different possible philosophical explanations, but you can, and it brings um, a depth to your analysis where you can you know, anticipate what James Lindsay is going to say and, you know, <laughs> really have a, an enriching conversation with him where I would just, you know, ask him a list of questions like if I talked to him. So it's just, it's very impressive. And I feel like I understand mm-hmm. it. I understand that now because of your breadth of knowledge. And also, I mean, there is a certain, I think, analytical skill that comes with mm-hmm. learning philosophy. Um, but it's a combination, I think, of that and actually understanding different theories that have been presented to explain some of these patterns. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a it's definitely a certain type of person who's going to be interested in philosophy. Um, you know, it's a, it definitely does kind of appeal to a certain type of mi- mindset frame of mind. But it's interesting when you talk about like connecting dots. <laughs> I had a tutor when I was two years old and, uh, you know, they we were reading the Boxcar Children and I would always tell her like what the end of the book was going to be, <laughs> and she was like, "Did you read the end of the book?" And now, yeah. now uh, later in life, I that is what I did intentionally because I liked doing that. I like to read the end and then read the book. Wow! You know, they, would always, they would always say, "Don't do that because you won't read the book." But well, I like to. But in philosophy, was- I can see needing to know where you're going to end up in order yes, to understand. It helps you get the big picture and then yeah. you can connect the dots. I can actually but, see that. But what was funny is, so I would tell her like. Not just like the end, but I would tell her what's going to happen, like different points. I'm like, I think this is going to happen, like, and we'd be reading it out loud. And she, uh, um, and she said to me that uh, I, she would explain, she explained the term foreshadowing, and she told me my talent was in connecting dots. You know that I, I saw. She said, well, well, the word she used was pattern recognition. She said yeah. that's really your talent. You're, you recognize patterns, and I've never seen you know a child at your age do that. And uh, but in hindsight, I remember thinking about it like it was a few years ago. I was with my mom and we were driving and I pointed out something with like the street signs and uh, that I, I noticed they had changed. And 
She's like, how did you know that? And I was like, well, look at this one, look at this one. And, yeah. and she, but I don't understand like what made you connect that. And I told her, I was like, well, I'm pattern recognizer. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I asked her about, her name was Miss Corey. I remember she was 104 years old. Was Come on. Mm -hmm. Miss Corey was 104 That's years old. some wisdom for you. And I felt so bad because I remember, I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, I was two years old. her. Obviously left it. Well, <laughs> she shook. And I remember, oh. um, you know, when someone came to pick me up and uh, I I had asked her, I said, why is your head shaking? And, mm -hmm. you know, she told me that that's like really rude. You don't do that. And I felt oh. so bad. Like, I remember that whole car ride and I came well, home. Well, she was just parents. teaching was like, you. Yeah, if no, Miss Corey didn't tell me. It was uh, my uh, my housekeeper oh. would come pick, to pick us up, make, oh. pick me up. Yeah, she told me she's like, "That's really rude. You don't ask." Um, but I could see Miss Corey's face kind of fall when I said oh. it. It felt really bad. Wow, but, at 104, she still had. She was sensitive. I I mean, I I I don't know. Right if she was on. Sensitive. I mean, like, yeah. I don't. Yeah, why I not? See, like, she's she a human of, being. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, but I remember. I remembered it really well, and I felt really bad about it. But when my mom said that, I brought that up, and it, it dawned on me. I was like, I was destined to be a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Like people ask me about events, like, do you know about this false flag and this false flag? And I'm like, no, I just know it's a false flag. I'm not right. worrying about it because it has every one of the. And I even at my radio show, I said to my boss, I was like, oh, so this is what happens. The shooter gets there, a couple of people die. He runs in the back of the room off camera and kills himself, and like. That happened like the very next day. It's like, how did you, how did, and I was like, well, it's just, it always happens that way. Like, it's very clear. Pattern. Yeah, he was amazed. I'm like, dude, you'd be, you have to deliberately not see those patterns. They're so obvious. But yes, totally. it is definitely, they, they just have no, very, they employ very little imagination. I think they know what patterns actually work and yes. they match like the archetypes I that are in so our too. minds. Yeah. I, I think that's spot on. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was very interested in all of these different, you know, things from a very young age. And then when I was in high school, I had asked to do, they, they had started something called a focus project, a senior focus project. It was essentially a dissertation. Uh, and I say that and people are like, no, but my mom who has a PhD, you asked about my sister. So it, I don't think it's so much that like my sister was, you know, she was six years younger. So at that point, it wasn't like they were giving me the same kind of, you know, yeah. focused attention. It was more that my mom went back to school when my sister was young. So she wasn't home right. as much. Um, and I remember that story too. I was out on the deck and like, it was dusk. And my mom says to me, I'm bored. And normally when she said she was bored, we were going to Bloomingdale's. Um, <laughs> but, but it was dusk and my mom doesn't like to drive in the dark so I knew we right. weren't going to Bloomingdale and I don't know why but I knew she meant it existentially and I said okay right. well, what do you want to do and she said well I'm thinking about going back to school but I don't know how you feel about that and I told her I said well I don't think I really like that because I know you won't have as much time for me um, but I said I think you need to do it and she did enroll two weeks later she started uh, taking classes so and what was her PhD in? it was in psychology so that's part of why I had such a background in psychology, because I felt like I lost my mom. You know, I spent mm -hmm. so much time with her. I mean, I was in and out of the hospital my whole childhood. And, you know, she was there with me. And so when I, so when I was like nine, I started reading Freud so that I could talk to her about her. He's got work. a lot of good points, right? Like he's risen and fallen in, uh, but I mean, he's not all wrong. He's not all wrong. He's not all wrong. I think he's a bit of a, quack but i i think that he kind of he, the thing well and he was of, a, an operative like young right? yeah i do think he was to some extent but i think he was also just these people have very reductionistic worldviews 
And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is uh, a lot of it's ego driven. You know, they want to be the one who like mm-hmm. found the answer to everything. Um, I, I do find that there's often, there absolutely has to be some value in any good op. Like oh, I yeah, use the Rolling Stones as an example, like they wouldn't work if they weren't good. And, um, but I do find that even in that kind of stuff, there is often like a unique kernel of truth that they uncover that you can put in your own kind of, you know, quiver yes. to use later. So I don't like to totally dismiss. I mean, anybody I agree. Oh, and he was right. He got a lot of things right. I just yeah. think that, you know, he reduced everything to Oedipus complex and that's yeah. just a little, which isn't not- even like, or penis envy. Like I didn't even yeah. know what a penis was. And people were like, you have penis envy. You know, like that if you had yeah. him, it would say that this young girl, but I literally was so sheltered. I just didn't, I, I couldn't yeah. tell you what it looked like. So <laughs> I couldn't have envied it in the slightest right. bit. You're like, uh, I don't just know what it even... is and I'm supposed to be envying. So. Yeah. And then when I found out what it was, I was like, I definitely <laughs> did not want one You're of like, those hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. So, so I, I read her her books and then I would read Psychology Today. I remember it came out every Thursday and I'd be like, so okay, the books can... that was lying around from your mom. Yeah, because cool. I knew she didn't have time anymore. So was it was like, hard well, to if I read, read her stuff. Visual impairments? I learned how to read. I, I was reading when I was two. That's but why for, I was reading Bakkar children. My problems um, didn't stand in your way. They now. affect my tracking. So, I mean, it was much less of an issue when I was younger than it is now. My vision is definitely not as good now. Oh. And I'm. Yeah, and I think some of it has to do with screen also. Yeah. Like I'm I don't read as much physical stuff, but I but I would have the in like in high school, in fact, I think it was like on the SATs or something where I missed a whole two pages and it's just because I just wasn't tracking the oh. Yeah. Because <laughs> so I was gonna say, did you get a perfect score on the SATs? No, well, I but I, I, I did like <laughs> you would have. I, I know. I but I did match my uh, math and verbal and it was my argument. Me too. Yeah, she called me in. She's like, something's up. That's <laughs> like, why they said that I got into Harvard. They like because you're very, very unusual I, to have the exact same score. I could the... you you have a very integrated like left right brain yeah. hemisphere. So I could I guess be that. It's unusual. But my my math was uh really went downhill because of I, I think I've told you this before. They put me in Montessori school when I was in third grade. So I finished the third grade. I finished sixth grade math textbook by October of third grade, but I didn't do math for three years. Uh, and math, yeah. So that really deteriorated. I mean, I was when my mom went back to school. I would work with her on the. I really liked trigonometry because it was like puzzles. Because I spent so much of my childhood mm, doing puzzles with cool. my eye patched. So if I could see, the puzzles were really fun. <laughs> it was a yeah. lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this is like a game. This is super fun. My mom did not like trigonometry. Uh, my mom does not have very good visual facial skills. My dad does. Uh, so, you know, some of it's genetic, but some of it I think is just because it was a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, my mom used to pull me out of school when I was like in fifth grade to help her decorate the house and, uh, you know, match up things, figure out like if the couch would fit. I, I actually have a note time. here. Uh-huh. Your image is great. Like your ability to look, you know, a, a certain oh. way and really pull together. And it, it just, you, I, I don't, I can't do that at all. I always considered because like nerd chicks can't do that, but well, you do a great job, but you've gotten, no, no, no. you've, you really do you. And you like, you'll post your outfits and everything. And I just like that is something yeah, for someone you. who's visually impaired. I'm surprised because I always feel like chicks who can do that are looking other chicks up and down all the time. 
Well, I've lo- always loved fashion. So uh, that was a, one of my dreams was to have a fashion line. I wanted to have a petite ready to wear because that doesn't exist. So it's right. kind of like, you know, in, not it's not quite like, uh, you know, just main big box store clothing, but it's not couture. It's like right in between. And it really doesn't exist. So that was always my dream. And uh, yeah, I actually, when I was in New York for a little while, I did work as like a personal shopper or stylist. Um, yeah. Not like for anybody. I did it for actors because I had put my uh, talent manager in business. And so a lot of his clients would come to me and I would work with them. I'm not surprised. So I'm going to say, I don't know yeah. if we want to do this two parts or whatever, but I'm going to break just like for one second here mm-hmm. um, and say this is the first hour and this is your like pre-adulthood backstory. <laughs> Yeah. And then let's say, let's go for, uh, now let's start with, you graduate from college. What's yeah. your first job? Okay. So I, so as I said, I started out as a neuroscience major and it was because I had done these two 85 page theses on dream analysis. And, uh, when I actually first presented it, uh, you know, it was a junior, it was the first junior to do this type of a dissertation. And, uh, when I, presented what I wanted to to do for my field study. I presented it to Columbia Presbyterian. They actually laughed at me, you know, and uh, they, they told me it was a human brain study and that I would need an MD, PhD to conduct the study. And I know in hindsight, I realized it's total gatekeeping because I was not going to slice people's brains. I mean, the neurosurgeon would have done that. They would have conducted the study. I was just overseeing it. It was my concept and my hypothesis that I wanted to test. Um, they told me that it, that it would probably be statistically significant and uh, I'd probably get a Nobel Prize, but not to bother because by the time I would go through the schooling required that they would probably have already done it. It's uh, so annoying because the schooling can truncate your creative impulse to think outside of those boxes. I, and I think it did for me, for sure. Oh. I, I do not, like college was not the best experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned way more in high school when they gave me the free reign to, you mm-hmm. know, kind of explore what I was interested in, you know, pursue those various paths. Um, but so I started college in neuroscience major and I ended up, because I thought I would do that, continue that path. But I ended up switching to philosophy and majored in philosophy. I came like one class shy of minoring in psychoanthropology. And if I had known that I was that close, I would have just taken another class. I had no yeah. idea. I was just interested in it. Um, but yeah, so I graduated and I was thinking that I was going to go back to school, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so I was looking for just like fun things to do in New York city for the summer. I really just wanted a break. Um, I had, before I went to college, my mentor for, who was the founder of the association for the study of dreams, she, she went to Princeton and she at the time was actually dating the Dean of Mission. And she told me, she said, I will write you a letter of recommendation. She pretty much was like giving me a, I don't think she could guarantee me, but you know, it was a pretty sure thing that I would go to Princeton. And she said, but my one requirement is the the caveat would be that you'd have to take six months off. And she said, uh, it, you, I don't care what you do. You can go to work, you can, you know, travel, you can, whatever you want to do, but you, you have to take six months off and not go straight to school. And my mom said, there's no way because she thought I would never go back to school, which I was so upset because I was like, do you not know me? I mean, yeah. I basically do that now. Like I'm yeah. basically back in school. Like yeah. I, it was so ludicrous. But so I didn't. And uh, when I graduated, I was like, at this time, I really did want to break. I was like, I need to just do something different. And uh, so I was looking for dance and gymnastics programs in the city. And I stumbled upon a movement class at Stella Adler. And as a little kid, I had always wanted to act. 
And it was something my parents did not encourage at all. You know, because they're like, you're having enough trouble with the kids at school. I don't think we need to put you in the public eye. Um, but I had a very vivid imagination. The whole idea of, you know, being in the, you know, entertainment world, really just in the fictional, like creativity world. Was yeah, really you're creative. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking so much about being in the public eye. But of course, my parents being, you know, doing their job protecting me that no, we're not doing that. Um, so they, yeah, so I found the this program with Stella Adler. And I took it was right before I was graduating, I took a trip down to New York City. And I like auditioned for it. And of course, I used a monologue from Elect Electra from one of Sartre's plays, just like the worst thing to use. It's very intellectual. It's not, it doesn't translate very oh, okay. well. Okay, got it. Yes. Visceral, you know, it's mm -hmm. very heady, uh, which, you know, can be done. But when you. Yeah, Shakespeare would have been better. Yes. <laughs> Shakespeare is guttural, you know, that, that definitely yes. would have translated yes. better. So. And your acting really matters. Yeah, exactly. So, but I did it and uh, it was, it was interesting because the response from the, you know, the guy who was auditioning me was, uh, okay, it's very clear that you've never done this. You have no idea. <laughs> um, and he said, but I can see that you have some raw talent. And uh, he said, uh, if you're willing to work really hard and know that you're going to be in a program with people who've been doing this since they were three years old, um, then, you know, we're willing to take you. And uh, wow. I said, okay, sure. It, but what surprised me most about it was that I thought it was going to be a lot like I had a lot of public speaking experience because I had done these two essentially dissertations in high school. My high school published both of them. You had to present before a panel and most of them were neuropsychiatrists. You know, they were professionals in the field. It's like 45 minute presentations. I was on the debate team. You know, so I had done a lot of very public academic speaking uh, in college, I was given a grant that I had to defend. And so I just, I felt like, okay, it's going to be like standing up and giving a speech. And it was nothing like that. <laughs> um, but what it reminded me a lot of was gymnastics, because in gymnastics, you do all this preparation. And then in that moment, the music goes on, like floor routine, for example, the music goes on, and you just have to let that all go and trust that it's there and be present in the moment. And that's what it really reminded me of that that's the best way I can describe acting. And there was something really terrifying about it, but also just really exciting and, you know, invigorating because I felt like it encompassed so much of what I had spent my, you know, childhood academic career doing was exploring the human psyche, whether it be from philosophical, the psychological, you know, but that's really what oh, I was curious yes. about. It was the human psyche, the human experience. But now as an actor, you're forced to embody that from a visceral perspective. Yeah, that's you know? super cool. And so it kind of encompassed all of that. And also I just felt like it would give me access to learn about things I would never be able to otherwise, you know? I oh think, yeah. What a cool experience. How long yeah. was that program? Like so time? that one I started, I did the summer program at first and I thought I would just do that. Um, and then I would, you know, figure out where I wanted to go to school, uh, what I wanted to do, you know, what, what was I going to be when I grew up? And I still don't know if I figured all that out, but you know, <laughs> we're not sure we ever do. Um, but I, but then I really loved it. And so I kept going and I did the Still Adler program. I did these, it was right after college. And then I did the, um, I, I worked with a scene study teacher and I worked with her for 10 years and it was a very intense, she was trained by Stella herself and Larry Moss. So she was uh, trained right under 
some of the, you know, really pioneers of the field. So, yeah, so I worked with her and it was a, because I was taking commercial course and a friend of mine kept bringing in like all these like real books, you know, like acting books and scene study books. And I, did that I, help at all? Can you learn acting from a book? Well, she was studying like scene study and uh, I was, I realized I was in, in her commercial class, which is very different. That's a very different, it's not acting to some degree but it's you know it's much more formulaic um and i was in that class and then i had gotten like some invite for um a sag audition and but you had to do a monologue and so i was like okay i think i need a coach to work with me on this because i don't want to do what i did to audition for stella adler because that was awful uh, and so I I asked her like you know who she worked with because it was obvious she kept coming in preparing for scene study class and uh so I, I went to work with her teacher and that was Lynette Sheldon. She worked under Stella Adler and Larry Moss. And so, yeah, I worked with her for 10 years. And I started- Wow, for yeah. 10 years. So 10 years. wait, what did you do over those 10 years? Were you working and making money and also learning? Like what exactly was that about? So the Stella Adler method is that you're really not supposed to work for two years. Uh, you're supposed to be in conservatory. This is like the old school. So it's like, like, it's like uh, Freud's- um, yeah. psychoanalysis or whatever, like you go to your own, like they're in there for 10 years, they're self-analyzing. I forget what they call it, but psychoanalysis. Like the method, uh, method yeah. acting kind of, I was not a huge fan of method acting. Honestly, I think that it's a very self-indulgent, very narcissistic, not just say that because the thing is, you're always going to draw from your own experience. I mean, we can't step outside ourselves unless maybe you're a dissociative personality, but really like we cannot step outside ourselves. So we're always coming from our own lens, our own makeup, our own, you know, genetic makeup, our own personalities, our own, and just our own day-to-day -day human experience and our psychological makeup. So that's always impacting. We are the vessel for which to channel the characters that we play. And to, you know, hopefully do it in a way that serves the through line of the author, the author's intentions. And that's, that, that's the job of an actor. So I, I, I just felt like method, not that I think it's great to have it as a, like, I always think of it as kind of like a toolbox. You know, if you have that in your toolbox, there are times where it's very useful. Um, but the writer, most likely, unless they're writing about your story, didn't write about you. So I think it's a little bit, um, I think it's a little shallow. It, it's limiting to make it about you. So you can yeah, use I was, your life. I always think some, go ahead. You can usually, yeah, you can use your life experience to help, uh, you know, facilitate and help to inform, but to make it about you doesn't make much sense. I don't think so. I always, <clears throat> I don't think this is exactly what you're talking about, but uh, the, I always think it's funny. Like people say Tom Hanks is a great actor and like, no, Tom Hanks is just Tom Hanks. If he were in the army, Tom Hanks, if he were a crossdresser, Tom Hanks, if he was a train conductor, whereas Glenn Close, and I always cite this Saturday Night Live appearance she made where mm -hmm. in every single scene, I was like, oh my gosh, Glenn Close is a lesbian? Oh my gosh, Glenn Close is an opera singer? Oh my gosh, Glenn Close is a murderer? Like, uh, you know, like every single one, I was just, it seemed like it was her, but she was a 100% the thing. She was supposed to be different accents, different looks. She looked taller sometimes. Right. She looked smaller, like... That was real acting, in my opinion. I'm, I imagine she's well-trained, well but... 
A great example of that is Kate Blanchett. It took her a really long time to actually take off. And part of why is so when you start your acting career, they tell you uh, you need to typecast. And a lot of people get very offended by this. But really, it's because somebody like her, the part of the reason it took her so long to be, quote unquote, discovered or to launch is because the casting directors never recognized her. Because she. Wow. Yeah. And like she was, to me, that's a true actor. That's a consummate actor. Somebody who can really embody so much so that they embody the physicality of a character and you don't recognize that person anymore. They've really taken on the role. So so being super smart and having acting experience, those are flags to me. (laughs) Those are flags. Anytime I hear somebody like, I'll look at that. I'll look if a politician was an actor. I'm like, oh. So uh, like Stacey Abrams, she was a physics major, um, an acting major and some other thing. And I was like, oh, they were deciding whether she was going to be Neil deGrasse Tyson or a politician, you know, like, but they had the (laughs) acting in there. She went to performing arts school and I always think that's what it's for. But, uh, but I'm still, I still feel like you're what you see is what you get. So let's see what, what you did next. So yeah. Yeah, so, so I was just as an actor. How are you I started, eating? How are you making ends meet? I mean, do you have a right? Little so money I started out mostly what? in theater. Um, in New York, and I did, and yeah, in New York, I started a theater company, and uh, yeah, it was awesome. So I was, you know, doing theater, odd end theater kind of jobs, but mostly what I found with theater is it's a lot like independent film. This is how I got into film production. Also, um, mostly what I found out is that money gets tied up and it's usually what holds everything back and stalls. And a lot of times funding falls through. And yeah. so I was kind of very naive and I would, you know, be very kind of annoyed. Like, you know, I chose to be an actor so I could play. And uh, why are we stalling my playtime? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd be like, what's going on? What's the holdup? And they would tell me like, there, there, little girl, you know, we, we need this money. We need this location. We need this set. We need these props and all these things that they need. And me just being kind of like, not starry eyed. Like I want to be famous. Just kind of like, okay, well, I want to play. What do I need to do? Business business is so important and cause and effect. I mean, you have to realize like these, that those were basically had to get done. So I said, okay, well, if I get these things, then will I get to play? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they're there, little girl, you know, and I would do it. I would be like, okay, I'll get, you know, the location. I would get the props, wow. I would work, work, build relationships, work deals. And they said, okay, well, now you're a producer. And I was, I mean, I really was kind of naive yeah. going to all of this. And I was like, oh, okay, but do I still get to play? <laughs> so this is a lot of, and we see this in your work today, uh, communication skills and interpersonal skills, which you're so great at. You're the only podcaster I can think of who I actually had a phone call or two with <laughs> offline, like for no reason but to chit-chat, like an hour and a half of chit-chatting with a couple of podcasters. Like you kind of want to- I don't do that with sh- everyone. You're, you're, yeah, I, I, I don't special, do it but- <laughs> anyone, but I said a couple of things to you, like I'm, you know, have whatever personal- like, oh, I'm so stupid. I shouldn't have said that, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, not at all. That's completely fine. I was like, wow, like this chick's got charm. Like, and it made me feel good. You know, like it made me feel fine. Like I felt like, cause a lot of times you don't know somebody very well and you just kind of, yeah. for me, cause I never stopped talking. By the time I'm finished, I hang up and I've said like 10 stupid things, which then haunt me for two days straight. So, but not so with you. So you have a lot of interpersonal skills, a lot of communication skills, obviously some business acumen if you were actually getting things done. To what do you attribute that? Well, I I started a lot of businesses as a very young kid. 
So I started like a, a car wash. I mean, silly things. Did like your parents were, encourage it or My anything? dad did. My dad very much did. Um, he was very encouraging of like uh, entrepreneurship and, you know, exploring and that you should go and figure out how to navigate. Um, and he was, yeah, he was a huge proponent of it. So I, it. I had like a car wash Experience, business when I was yeah. a kid. Okay. I had a, I started a babysitter club, like <clears throat> nice. and a business. So I had like yeah. other babysitters working under me. <laughs> um, I had a, I started a 90210 paraphernalia, like sales. And my dad helped me with that. Like he was very, you know, much behind that. Um, so there were a bunch of those kinds of things. So I think that mindset, you know, was definitely ingrained in me that you could, uh, you know, be entrepreneurial. But the experience and, is yeah. important too, not just the mindset, mm -hmm. but you had to actually have experience of doing those things in order to be effective. Yeah. So I did do that. I did a lot of, at the time when I was acting, I did a lot of odds and ends jobs. So I did a lot of temp work. I did a lot of, uh, um, barista. I was not did you a get your hands dirty. I did do well, you know, so as a temp, my favorite temp job was, I think it was Liz Claiborne, but it was basically stocking their inventory. <laughs> and it seemed so like mindless, but I got to see all the new clothes that came in, Yes, you know, and I got to sort them all. And, and they like, have a petite section, if I'm not mistaken. They do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was, that was actually one of the most fun temp jobs I did. But I did, I did all sorts of, uh, I did promotional modeling, like, and it's not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you're like in clubs and, you know, or like, you know, photo shoots. But most of the times it's uh, standing out in like, you know, freezing temperatures, shivering, handing out flyers, you know, um, that's right. considered promotional, promotional modeling. Uh, so I did a lot of that. I did, I did do cocktail waitressing, wait, bar bartending and wait, wait waiting tables was very hard for me because I couldn't hear. Oh yes. Um, it's I loud. Imagine. It's dark. So that was That's really all I ever did, but yeah, I did, but I did do some cocktail waitressing. Um, I did a lot of like, uh, you know, the door I had dated a promoter. So I did a lot of, I was very involved in the club scene. Yeah. Cool. You know, and I did a lot of like the, the cash at the door and coat check. I worked for the grand of honor room. That was great money. You would way. look great in a pillbox hat. You know what? Pillbox hat. Isn't that what the Kochek girls oh, used to yeah. wear? Oh, yeah. I never had to wear that. But yeah. <laughs> that's at the like the rainbow room on top of Rockefeller Center. Used to they always have the pillbox hats and oh. very art deco. So uh, I could yeah. see. Well, Kochek was great money. I, they had so the Grand of Honor room has two. They had one in New York and they have one in LA. The LA one obviously doesn't have a coat check, but the New York one, <laughs> right. yeah, <laughs> but the New York one did. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of like politicians, celebrities, and people with a lot of money. And uh, they, uh, not all of them, but some of them tip really well. So but it was a yeah. hard job. You're standing on your feet. I was usually wearing four inch heels or more platforms for 12 hours sometimes wow. at a time. Yeah. It in the cigar, the cigar. But still, smoke. that's real. I actually like cigar smoke, but there's that's real money. Yeah, that's why I always waitress and stuff because it was real money. Anything that like they had to multiply your hours by like a number. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The temp no. work was not very good money, but yeah. it was you know it was pretty steady no. in my life. And the, my most steady, like if you look at my resume during that time, particularly in New York, the thing I did the most was bookkeeping, which is kind of weird. Um, but I was usually yeah. like an assistant to accountants. So well, that'll worked, help worked. with your business acumen. So, yeah. so you moved to LA at a certain point. Was yes. it like, was it right after your 10 years 
with the Pretty shortly after that um there was a so I had encouraged my mom to uh purchase an apartment in New York City and uh well I just knew it was going to be such a good deal yeah like right. I knew I it was a as as the uh, salespeople said to us it was a you know it was a two and a half a two yeah what was it a two thousand square feet one and a half bath and yeah, be, exactly. I was like, so wow. this, they tore down the master bedroom because, as they explained, it was a Japanese company. It was funny. You were talking about it, You took Japanese. I tried to teach myself Japanese in third grade. I didn't get that far. But <laughs> um, they, it was a Japanese company. And they told us they you know came to three times a year, no live, no sleep, just party. And so they tore down the master bedroom to have a big they – they had a bar. It was just like an oh, open wow. party space. It was beautiful. Um, you know, in the, right above the MoMA, uh, so it was overlooking the, uh, yeah, you know, overlooking the city, midtown Manhattan. Yeah, so yeah. it was beautiful, wow. but it was pretty cheap for what it was. Right. And uh, I knew my mom was looking anyway, but I was like, you should take this, <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I think this is gonna, we could easily put a pop up wall for pretty cheap and yeah, you yeah. Know, sell it for a lot more. So, um. Yeah, so she we ended up, you know, buying contiguous ones, and I became like property manager. So he, uh, it was always the running joke that whatever guy I was dating at the time, his job was to help me move my everything over to whatever apartment was vacant. Um, because yeah, so you've buy, been yeah. exploiting that resource stream since you were <laughs> like three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, we, but then uh, after two thousand, it was right before the crash of two thousand eight, and. Uh, you know, we had a pretty good instinct to to sell at that point. Wow. And right. uh, so I it was kind of the running joke because, you know, I had lived in a Fifth Avenue apartment and I became homeless, but I really was. So I was living, <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah. I was there as like, you know, I just shuffled into whichever one wasn't rented and I managed the properties. And uh, yeah, so then my, I was living back and forth between my parents and my sister. And I, I started looking places, but I really couldn't afford to buy anything. And New York had gotten so expensive. And then, you know, the market crashed. And it was, yeah, so it was just not a great time to buy, to uh, even rent anything. The rent had just skyrocketed. Right. And uh, so I, I don't know. I thought about it pretty hard. And I was like, well, I mean... I can't really spend the rest of my life crashing between my parents and my sister. Um, you know, that was a, somebody was not going to survive. So right. uh, <laughs> I was like, this is not going to end up well. And, uh, you know, I mean, really, that's not what any of us wanted for ourselves anyway. So I thought about it. And I was like, well, I always wanted to go out to L.A. And I had been booking a lot more film. I So it was an interesting thing. Right. I really prefer theater. But I lend myself better to film my acting teacher always said like the people in the back row have no clue what you're doing got like, it so as, an act so as a theater actress it doesn't, right. doesn't translate very well but she said the nuances were my talent and so she said if we had a camera zooming in on you we, we know exactly what's going on right and so i was booking some film but it was all independent film that doesn't really pay very well it's not very consistent and at the time there wasn't a whole lot of work in new york uh for film there was more tv then and yep. so I uh, moved out to LA and I did, so I didn't actually tell my parents I was moving. I did an acting program with a three month workshop and uh, I told them it was a little bit longer than sleepaway camp and that I would be home pretty soon. <laughs> and, uh, well, but you didn't I, know, maybe you would have been. Yeah. And I packed up uh, like a bunch of boxes that I had in my parents' garage 
And after the program, I called my dad and I said, you know, those boxes in the garage. And he said, yeah, we, we need to do something. Your mother is driving me nuts. We have to clean this up. And I said, well, you can ship them because I'm going to stay. They must have been devastated. I think, I think my mom really was. Um, yeah, I, I think so. But I think I needed to explore. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so <laughs> LA was pretty tough. Um, well, you I'm know, or IMDB. Yes. And it looks like, oh, you're a chic woman in the Magnificent yeah. Julie. That's seven points. <laughs> the Magnificent, so that was really a bummer. That Coolie was the tea. role that gave me my SAG card, the Magnificent Coolie T. Yeah. Apparently, they had some sort of legal issues and the film never got distributed. I think it was distribution <sighs> issues. So I was supposed well, highly to highly rated. Yeah, I was supposed to have two lines in the movie. I ended up, they ended up giving me eight, like on the spot, which is, you know, in yeah. film SAG world, that's a big One deal. is good. Yeah, exactly. So that was a big <laughs> deal. And uh, the director really, we had a really good rapport. I was really looking forward to working with him more. And it was, yeah, I was pretty devastated that that never came out, but it was what I got my SAG card from. And from there, it was just like, it was this, uh, I, I moved into mostly producing and that I started chasing this project. So, uh, the, and why am I blanking on the name of it? I think this is just, uh, um, I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. I'm almost like, I want to look back and see if I can find the name of it. Of um, what? Of this film that I was, uh, that was, became my baby. Oh, that's not here on the IMDb. No, it never got me. This was this whole, oh, fade out. Fade Out was the original name. Yeah. So it was a movie, as I said. So I had, it, this is it's kind of silly, but the story was like very pivotal in my my mind. I So I was blonde for most of my time in New York. Like, not no blonde. Um, Sorry, let me just mute myself. So like platinum blonde, you know, and uh, so I moved. So right before I had moved to LA, I think I dyed my hair uh, red. And so I was like pretty fire engine red and I do these things are a big deal, you know? So I, um, because it has a lot to do with your casting, like how are you going to be cast typecast? And so I was getting cast a lot as, so when I was blonde, I was going, a lot of the roles were like, you know, ditzy cheerleader, which is fine. Um, but I, I did a lot of like self negotiating and I found that dealing with the, uh, you know, the executives, the directors, producers, they would get very confused. And I actually don't blame them. I don't really fault them for this. This is just kind of how it is. I, I know a lot of women would be would tell me I'm a bad representation, but I, I'm not really a feminist, so it's fine. Um, but they it, they were just kind of confused. They're like, why is little blonde cheerleader negotiating with me? You know, like they just really couldn't wrap their heads around it. And they would get almost like angry. I could see that. As as envious as a girl like me would always be growing up, uh, where I was definitely by far the darkest girl around in my circles as a kid, always really, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say jealous. I, I think I definitely was jealous. I'm not sure envious <laughs> or jealous is the right word. Yeah, of right. the blonde girls, I mean, I just wanted to be blonde. Like, I, right. I just thought life would be so much better if I was skinny and blonde, obviously. Right. So, however, I have met some blondes who have said that just like 
people don't, they just assume you're unintelligent and it, and it, and inside, you know, being underestimated can be an advantage, but a lot of times Ooh, it's I thought just it was. impossible. Yeah. I thought it was an advantage actually. Um, okay. but because, you know, I could really play that and, uh, you know, play that to my advantage, but I noticed they were just, they were so frustrated and it's like, cause they didn't know what to do with me. And, uh, I ended up putting, uh, uh, my manager, who he became like my big brother, we're very close in business because he really wanted to represent me. He kept telling everybody I was like that I was his model. I'm like, I'm I'm five foot one. Like I missed that boat by a foot. I'm not a model, uh, but I'm an actor. And if you want to represent me, we'll have to teach you the business. But I realized pretty early on in the business that just having a man just to, even if I told him exactly what to say, that if he did the negotiating, oh. it's it would be much better for me. So. As a mother, I've had that experience. So I have two sisters who basically raised their kids as mm -hmm. single moms, more right. or less. And I feel so bad for them when I think about the, when push comes to shove with something with my kids' education and having a special kid, it's just going on forever yeah. or anything like that. I would, my husband's very busy. He's got a you know job, works long hours, but I would say, hey, you got to, you got to come to this meeting or you got to just call this guy because I don't have time to mess around and they'll just respond to you. And it's a hundred percent. I mean, a hundred percent. It's very clear. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I had that experience at Ethan Allen recently. I was just like, hold on, you know, this is not right. I'm sending it back. And they're yeah. like, no, no, no. I had my husband called and literally they didn't even, but they're just like, okay, what's your address? We'll come pick it up. I was like, what, what? And actually it was restoration hardware, which my oh, friend my. called frustration hardware because anyway, <laughs> They did resolve it. So yes, I'm very happy with it all. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I also don't want to throw Ethan Allen under the bus. But I'm just saying, like, even in regular life, that, yeah. that seems to me true most of the and time. And I didn't really have any, like, I, I had no resentment about it. It was just like, okay, no, it logistically makes sense. And so I will have him. But I did decide that it might make more sense to be, you know, going after different roles. So I went, so I went red first, but then. I, I was like, I had been in LA for maybe nine months and I decided that I was going to dye my hair brown back to my natural color. Um, and uh, I, I remember on the way home, I was like stuck in typical LA traffic, you know, and I, I really, I was hungry and I was like, I really want to get Froyo. And I was like trying to figure out there were two places I could go. And I know you, you being in LA, you'll understand this. So I'm thinking, well, Pink Berry or Red Mango. No, I, the pl place doesn't exist anymore. The place okay. I really wanted to go. And the other one I think was a uh, pink berry, but yeah. the place I wanted to go didn't exist anymore. doesn't exist anymore. But I, but the whole bit debate was, okay, you have to make a left turn and there's no light there and there's traffic. So I might not make it. Um, so, and then I would go to the other one, but I decided that, but I, traffic parted. There was a spot waiting for me and I went, you know, it was all meant to be. I walk in and there's this guy from the minute I walk in who starts, and I do think he was just a little bit off, but like very socially awkward, starts asking me a million questions the minute I walk in the door. And just as I like about to walk out the door and I thought I made a clean getaway, he stops me and he says, are you an actress? And I'm kind of like, like everybody in this town. Is that, right. Yeah, I know. Like how much more cliche could we get? And I was like, yeah. yeah. And he says, oh, well, he turns to the woman sitting next to him who apparently they've been sitting there all day. And it turns out they grew up like a town outside of Chicago, like in the same town, basically, or like a town away from each other. And he's like, well, maybe she wants to read your screenplay. You've been asking people all day and she's an actress. And uh, I was like, okay. So I was just trying to be polite. And I walked over oh and I God. said, well, here's my card. You can email me. And uh, she hands me her card and it said creative form by people with disabilities. 
And so I know. So I was like, could they tell you had disabilities? I don't think so. I mean, I wow. I don't. I don't think so. But I. But I was like, what's this all about? She. She was kind of like pretty jaded and a little bit. I could yeah. tell a little bit bitter. You know, she was kind of like, why does yeah. that matter to you? Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, it's actually very personal to me. Um, and uh, she said, why? And you know, I gave her kind of cliff notes. I'm like, well, I'm hearing impaired. I'm visually impaired. You know, I had a patch of my eye every other day of my childhood, and um. And uh, they told my mom that she could always find a nice institution for me. So, yeah, I got this is relevant to me. And she said, oh, she said, could you play totally blind and totally deaf? <laughs> and I said, what's they telling Keller on, in, on stage in New York wow. City? Yeah. And it was a really hard role for me because. Helen Keller, true story? I think it is. <laughs> really? I do. I do think she was used as, I think she was used as an operative, but I do. Because right, I feel like a little bit like Stephen Hawking's like, wh- we have absolutely no idea what he really thinks about the existence of God. He, we just know what that little computer says he says. Oh yeah. Well, I, I, I have less confidence. You know, Ann Sullivan, we know what she thinks about everything because she's the mouth, right? Right. Well, anyway, sorry. I, I maybe, I do think she was used. I, I think she right. was used as an operative. Um, I, it might be pretty hard for me to think that she was not. Sorry, real. I didn't mean to do that to you. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm open. Sorry, I'm, sorry, I, I'm sorry, open, sorry. but yeah, I'm I think she moving. was real. <laughs> okay, so you did. So you, you but I played. With her, this... It was a really hard role for me because for most actors, it's an exercise in sensorial deprivation. But for me, it was an exercise in allowing me to relive some of the most traumatic experiences yeah. of my entire life that I had spent my life trying to get over. Yes, I totally. So, I love never thinking about bad stuff. Yes. I'm not a proponent of like, let, let's get it out. I'm like, you know what? No. <laughs> Me, yeah. I'm like, let's, let's move on. Let's, uh, Unless you have an alcohol problem, you really don't need to go back. No. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of, uh, but I was like, but I think I'm pretty sure I could play it. You know, I've done it yeah. and, uh, and I kind of lived it a little bit. So, or close to it. And uh, she said, well, you're actually physically right for the female lead. So maybe you'll be interested. Would you like to read the story? So, I read it. I read it like an hour that night. I was like, you know, really. It read like a novella. It was not really a screenplay. Right. Uh, it definitely needed a lot of work. Uh, but then she told me that they she had this like producer who was going to help, and he was going to get the the male lead, and he was already really interested. And so I had this whole conversation with him that night, and uh, he was after talking to me for a while. He was like, "Well, I think I want you to help me produce it." I ended up working with him for two and a half years and he built, he was brilliant, a complete sociopath, uh, like literally. I mean, he had been, I later found out he'd been in and out of jail for minor things like money laundering, Ponzi scheme, embezzlement, uh, fraud. Um, But he was brilliant. I think it's one of those really just mentally ill because he, he was a hard, hard worker and he was so smart that if he had applied those, you know, to a... But he, I think it's it was good. the thrill of doing, yeah, I think it was the thrill of doing it, like the underhanded getting away with it. He yeah. just couldn't help himself. And, but he ended up, we built this, it was, I worked with him for two and a half years. We built this like whole infrastructure that had eight subsidiaries under it. And I started bringing on like friends of mine to work, but we weren't making any money and they were on commission. And at some point I called them all and like told them that, you know, I don't see any money coming in and I can't like in good faith, like you're obviously welcome. Uh, But so for a while I was doing all of it myself. Like he would call me two in the morning work to do work. So it was maybe bipolar. 
I, yeah, I, I think he had a lot of issues. <laughs> um, but he, but the script, the concept was really something I was so passionate about because her, her whole mission was, you know, they have all this, uh, like SAG now has all these diversity, you know, mm-hmm. inclusion mm-hmm. like requirements. And she's like, but they never do anything with disabled. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, they, she, she was saying how I think like, you know, gay or at the time, because now it's the trans, but like at the time should are representing something like 25% of the media. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like a very small portion of the act. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she said, but the disabled actually make up, you know, a significant mm-hmm. portion of the population. And you almost never see them represented in yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the media. And when they are, it's not, they're not being portrayed by people with actual disabilities. Was this fade out that you were working on for? Yeah. This was is, this guy? Okay. Yeah. This was fade out. And so, um, yeah. And you so, never started filming? Like there is no, nothing on the cutting room floor? No, I, there's, there's nothing. I really spent the two years shopping it around getting the money. and oh. getting the money. And I really thought, and this was the most devastating moment was, so if, uh, in the industry, they have something called like a, a lottery and, uh, you can enter to get like tax credits. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to get in in LA, obviously, because it's a very saturated market. And I made it into the lottery. They called me. I will never forget this. And I'm like immediately, immediately start hysterically crying because we had just lost the money or it, it, we, the money was never there. But, you know, I thought <sighs> it was and then found out it wasn't. And they were so nice, actually. They said, well, we'll give you a few more weeks if you want to go and source more funding. Wow. And I was like, I spent two and a half years trying yeah. to get this funding. Like, that is not going to happen. Did money materialize and this guy took it or? No. What happened? I don't know. That I'll never right. know. Um, so what happened was he had this deal with some, like, Saudi guy, like Tehen, Teher, Tehran was his name. And they were working through the UK. And so I went and had this big meeting in the UK. Like I flew to the UK. I brought my accountant with like the film accountant with me. Uh, uh, the the writer came with me um, and we took this trip and we had this whole meeting and then we opened up the bank account. And uh, then when we were supposed to do like the, the deal after the, the bank account, they never showed up in the meeting. And then they did all these phone calls and they were like, don't worry, when you get back to the States, it's fine. Like everything's set up and, you know, we'll just do the transfer. And so I set up this whole account. Oh my gosh. And uh, then I got to the States and I, I, it was a few weeks later, I got this email at like six in the morning saying that uh, they, the funds could not be transferred. And it did say that I thought it was the IRS, but I don't know. I, yeah. at this, I don't even remember. But it's Definitely obviously the whole thing sketchy. was a scam. It yeah, was, that's it sucks. Scam. Wow. And that's a couple of years of your life and emotional. And I just feel like that's very hard. It must be very hard to get over. And you have gotten over so much in the past, yet you're one of the few people who are positive. I'm positive, (laughs) but it's hard to like be as immersed. You're even immersed in scarier stuff. I'm just reading the news. You're reading like the Tavistock white papers. Like you really, I, it's amazing. We have to talk about the white pill, but let's talk about your next step yeah. professionally or uh, even just, you know, what you decided. Is this when you started just really full-time focusing on fitness and sharing yes. that? So that was right about at that time. So I took- You can control that. That that would be right. something that you know, you're going to get the benefits of that. 
Exactly. So I kind of started to walk away from, I mean, I was really just demoral. I started another production company right after that with a friend of mine. Uh, There was another project that also did not get off the ground. Um, It was called Princess Pooch. I just think that one had so much potential in terms of, uh, you know, monetary reward. Like it was, I mean, it had all of the, you know, the hallmarks. Like it was a, you know, a movie about a dog and it had like a <laughs> fairy tale. It was a children's film. It, I mean, it was, and it was really cute. Um, and it wasn't like, you know, it was actually just a children's fairy tale. It wasn't like dark, like Disney or. Um, right. you know, did, did the mother really, die in the first scene? No. She wow. did not. It'll never it'll never sell. It'll never want. It was an intact family. Cause that was so that was so we that was what we were working on. My we ended up parting because she really wanted to do horror films. I my whole thing was I wanted to do family values films. And she, in terms of business, had a better idea because horror films are a really great oh, business yeah. model. They're cheap to make, They're they sell right like now. hotcakes. Yeah. But and they have really... an international market. I don't like them because they reinforce this culture of death, which I did not realize was so, you know, so profound. And my mother would always say she always work against abortion, like pray to end abortion, go to the abortion clinics and stuff. She always just focused on pray for world peace. She and she means it in a real way. And then her in her last days, like she was totally opposed to um hospice and and i realized that it she just had a real moral problem with euthanasia even to relieve profound suffering so someday i'll tell you about like her last couple of days but um yeah she was just really really opposed to that amazing yeah and i and it taught me lessons she doesn't like she wouldn't like tell you like this is why she would just say i'm not doing that and that's when we were praying for her to not suffer and she said don't pray that i don't suffer because i might suffer just pray that i can take it and then i realized what she was saying Mm -hmm. was i'm not don't give me like the button to push do not give i don't want it i don't want to be tempted don't don't and i realized like even seeing her through to the end that 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 like natural conceptions and natural death is so it's such an important uh connection to you know life to each other keep your feet on the ground it's like i didn't care about chemtrails at all that time you know what i mean i didn't yeah. read the news i didn't care and that i realized was like where and i've always thought this where the powers that be are so wrong is that they just don't understand the animating force of of humanity and they like to, they, maybe they do understand it because they want to break that bonds down. And I feel like, and I'm not telling people like, don't press the button, don't do hospice, right. don't, I mean, because that is such a personal situation. I would say, think about it, yeah. you know, don't rush into it. But, uh, but I really learned so much just from, from that. And then I started to understand what she meant about the culture of death. And I, and I started and that, and the horror movies and like really gruesome, bloody scenes. And you'll be watching a regular show and they'll just make it totally gruesome to get you desensitized to it. So I'm, I'm opposed. I don't like it. I don't like it from a, like a really cultural moral. I get it. I've never, I've yeah. And I think I felt very similar. So I really wanted to do family values films. And so we ended up parting ways and, you know, we're still very good friends, but you know, we realized that it doesn't make sense to continue the business venture. Um, But that was the next one that I was really working on was Princess Pooch and didn't get off the ground. And so at that point, I was pretty demoralized. You know, I had myself up after the whole his name was Phil. But after that whole being scammed and, you know, being completely devastated with 
because that was my baby. I mean, it was such a personal piece, you know. Were you going to play? I the would, yeah. Love I interest? Would, yeah. So, I mean, it was such a personal piece. At Is this it too point, late? I, I think I'd be too old to play her, honestly, now, but there's nothing um, wrong with I mean, you could adapt it to being yeah, just I guess so. a little yeah. bit older. Yeah. I would love to see something happen with it just because it was such a I mean, obviously, it's such a personal piece for me. Yeah, and it was good, right? It was. It was good. really good. It, the script needed work for sure. Like I said, it was written more like a novella. But I mean, directors write scripts on set, so it's it, it absolutely could have been adapted. And I think the concept was fantastic. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so I started to leave that, and in uh, I had kind of around that time, I had tried out for American Ninja Warrior, um, and uh, I saw I, your your audition for that and, and i just did. it was so i could not believe you didn't get on you're just like i'm deaf and blind and hypotonic and look i can fly and it's <laughs> like wow this chick's amazing Thank i can't you. believe you didn't get on it i was really really upset that's always another like i've had a lot of like losses that i've mourned but um yeah, yeah. That. So do you still pick yourself up that's why you're such a good like you know inspiration Thank you. Yeah. yeah I, well, I, I don't know that you have a choice. We just have to keep going. So, but yeah, that was really it with that. So I had, um, you know, when I didn't get picked to run the course that that video had leaked and I, you know, my, he was actually the lawyer I was working with on princess pooch, but he was a friend of mine. I had auditioned for him a decade earlier and uh, he always called me the diamond in the rough. And, you know, we were very close and, uh, he he called me up that morning. It was like six a.m. and you know, of course, it was uh you know nine o'clock in East Coast time. But he called me and he said that he had seen my video for Ninja Warrior, and I thought, well, I had sent it to six people for feedback because uh, my ex was an editor and he had done the video. But he told me I had a two-hour window the next day if I wanted any changes to be made. So I sent it out, and it was back then to have anything upload and render. I mean, just on my computer, it was going to take 72 hours, which I didn't have. But Facebook, wanting all of your data, uh, you know, makes things very easy for you to upload. And so it took even 10 minutes on Facebook, though. That shows you, you know, how big the file was. Wow. So it was, uh, I p uploaded it, made it, I thought I made it private. And I, I did make it private. And I sent it to six people. And one of those people was my, the one who calls me his uh, little sister, uh, who was my manager, and he right. shared it publicly. And so my, when my lawyer called and he, I said, yeah, I sent it to you. He said, no, no, no. He made it public and it's, you know, it's now been seen. So I thought I was going to just take it down. But at that point, 3,000 people had already seen it overnight. And, you know, Did that, that disqualify was, you? So I don't know that it disqualifies me, but what what he said to me, because he was a film, he was a writer and a filmmaker. And so he's very much in that world. And he said, he said, I don't know. He said, you're perfectly legally fine. You say it's a submission video. There's nothing wrong with you, you know, sharing it. He said, however, knowing your story, he said, what's kind of, you know, like most people you hear their story and then you see them do stuff and it's like you root for the underdog. And he said, with you, I feel like it's the reverse. It's much more interesting from a filmmaking perspective, just from a storytelling perspective, to see you do amazing feats yeah. and then hear your story. But if your right. story's already told, yeah. then the reveal isn't there. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So he was like, I have a feeling that you just will, won't get picked because now right. it doesn't have that you know, impact. Sounds right. 
And so I will never know. But when I didn't get picked, I was very devastated. And I gave myself a six-week period to mourn. Um, and I, like, didn't do pull-ups for six weeks. This was, you know, a big deal. <laughs> that was your punishment to yourself, not doing yeah, pull-ups? Yeah, well, I emotionally <laughs> couldn't handle it. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it was, like, really emotional. I was like, yeah. I can't do it. I need to just take some time off. Um, I mean, I trained, but I didn't do that kind yeah, of Yeah, what do you do on your time off? Lay around and eat ice cream and drink old fashions? Or like, <laughs> what? Like, well, it's I like old fashions, push yeah. to sit up. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I did still train, but I just wouldn't do that kind of training. Right. So like, right. I need the space. So I, but then after six weeks, I was like, okay, I, I think I've had my pity party. It's time to pick myself up. And what, and, when was this? What year? It was 2014. Was, okay. Yeah, yeah, 2014. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, um, but then I thought I came up with this concept and I was like, it would be amazing because what I, I was like, I really wanted to look at what are the positives I can take from this. Cause you know, you take hard lessons from life, but you don't, those aren't always the most motivating and you know, they don't help you propel forward always. So they're important to learn, but I really wanted to look at what was something really positive I could take from this experience that would catapult me to, you know, move on with my life. And, uh, so at that point, I, uh, I, what I realized was that people overwhelmingly were telling me how inspired they were by my story. And I was like, well, I don't really find me all that inspiring because, you know, I live with me day in, day out and mm -hmm. I find me kind of, you know, annoying. But I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if I had a, a conduit, like a show for athletes with disabilities? It could inspire yeah. the, the audience and they would feel rewarded and vindicated. So I started interviewing. I had a couple of friends who were athletes with disabilities. And, uh, you know, I started reaching out to others. And, uh, you know, just I was very immersed in that circus community at the time. Uh, doing like acro yoga and I started doing the silk so that I could train for a ninja warrior and work on my grip strength. So I, I had outreach in that, you know, community and I started talking to them and I realized like most of them did not move because of the, uh, in spite of, they moved because of, and that's where I came up with my premise that all human beings are designed to move the ways in which we do our, our unique creative experience expressions. And, uh, so I, that, that kind of shifted the premise and I started the show called whim. What is movement? And it was really just like people's stories. So what kind of a show is that? A YouTube show or what? So it was a YouTube show. I have no access to it now because YouTube has taken down my channels. And that was actually a separate channel. But you can't, I can't get into it because they recognize the IP. And it doesn't seem to matter what computer or what phone. Uh, I can't seem to get into it to even take down those videos. Um, and not all of them were put up because I obviously couldn't, you know, continue. But there's nothing leave. controversial about those. It's just what you did later. It's, yeah. So let's talk about 2014 yeah. to 2020. Try to get yes. that in yes. now, and we take a, another like pause, and then yeah. we'll talk about because the, the dividing line. <laughs> I just I have a little funny comment about that, but let's let's talk about that yeah. just briefly. That 2014 to 2020 period, mm -hmm. and then we can take an actual break if you want. Okay, yeah, sure. So I uh, yeah, so I then started doing. Uh, more like fitness related stuff. So I was working on that show whim. And uh, then I started like, I had had my personal training certification years ago. I'm like, I have a ridiculous amount of trainings. Um, you know, like I, I was did real estate in New York. Like I did e-commerce. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of cert certification. So I love certifications and credentials. I love it. Like if you've got nothing to do or you've got downtime or you're like depressed or anything like that, I just find yeah. that to go. Some people get tattoos. I like to get, you know, Cer certification. yeah, certification. I just say, and it this makes is why we're like, friends. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't go away. Like I always thought my sister lost her job. I was like, you should get a, an insurance license. 
like, yeah, insurance? Like, why not? like you could sell insurance online. She's like, why would I want to? I was like, well, you probably will never get to do it. But if six months from now, you still don't have a job, you're going to be able to make some money. I mean, that time is going to pass anyway. Right. And like, yeah. And then like 18 months later, she didn't have a job. It's like, you should get an insurance license. <laughs> well, so yeah. I, uh, so I had had my uh, personal training certification. I had let it lapse. Um, but you know, something I did a little bit here and there in New York. I mean, I, I did all sorts of, like I said, a personal styling. I did actually staging for when I had my real estate license. The more fun thing to do actually mm -hmm. was uh, uh, to stage the sets for open houses. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of like interior design, that sort of thing. But anyway, um, so I had start, I started CrossFit and I fell in love with that. And I was like, oh, I should get my CrossFit certification. And so I did. And then it really was kind of random, but I knew the owner of the gym and they were they, like the 5 a.m. class, like coach didn't show up. And I lived really close, like it's wall. And I told them, I said, you know, I happen to have my my uh, L1, you know, your CrossFit one certification. And I was like, if you ever need somebody to fill in, like I'm happy to do it. And so that led to me working as a CrossFit coach and uh, then uh I ended up working in a couple of other, another gym and doing some, you know, personal training. So really that kind of became, yeah. But are you muted? I think you're muted. Yes. No, you're still muted. I know. Yeah. I, I've clicked it twice. I'm wondering <laughs> if you can see a picture in the comments. Now it doesn't oh. look like it. So I'm going to just show you a picture and okay. ask you if this is from your CrossFit days. That's amazing. Oh, okay. We just went through like my life story. <laughs> well, no, we didn't even get oh. to the good part. Yet. To now, I think that's actually pretty recent. I mean, yeah, I think that's like it's crazy for someone who's who's high. Look at that. That's just <laughs> well, crazy. Thanks. Yeah, that was July fourth. Not, I think last year or the year before. <laughs> yeah, it was really recent. I mean, but that yeah. you were ever considered hypotonic. It's like crazy. So, okay. So you were, you had CrossFit. Yes. Yes. So I was coaching CrossFit and that really kind of consumed my life. I mean, I ended up working, you know, like the, the 4am shifts. I was working the evening shifts. I was training clients in between. Was um, that costing you money at this point or were you actually making money? Because a lot of this I, stuff sounds like you weren't making money, but you're putting a lot of effort yeah, in. I was putting a lot of effort in. So I, I wouldn't say made a whole lot of money doing that. I mean, it was, it, it was supplemental, you know, it, it got me by, um, training clients makes a lot more than coaching CrossFit, right. obviously. Okay. Um, so training clients was, yeah, that was helpful. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of time just the driving in LA cause one of the gyms was in Los Feliz and then one of them oh. was in Santa Monica. Um, and then in rush hour traffic, it was, yeah, it was a lot. And uh, so at that time, I was also very engaged in the aerial world. So that paved the way for me to start. Uh, and then right before COVID is when I was really starting to book uh, speaking and performing. For about aerial. like um, uh, just about your fitness stuff, like generally, specifically. Well, I would, my my okay. speech was it was motivational, but my speech was really about movement as a metaphor for life. Got it. So it was really it was really centered. I was using my story as a testimony. But it was really centered around how, you know, I wrote my college uh, application essay it was uh, my life began as a series of challenges. And since then, I've continued to seek out emotional, mental, physical, uh, spiritual challenges to surround. And I think that, that that really is true. But all of us are you know, faced with challenges. That's that's life. 
And, you know, they're, they look differently for each of us. That's our, our unique path. But I think that having something so concrete, you know, there's just, it's like the example of just like doing a push-up. A lot of times when I would work with, uh, especially female uh, clients in the beginning, a lot of them couldn't do push-up and they would think that they could never do one. And then you just take them through the progression and they're able to do it. It's so incredibly empowering. And it's something, it sounds kind of simple. It's just like this one, you know, physical task. But sometimes it's even just completing the workout that day. So I just realized that I know for my own life, and I used my life story as a testimony for it, but it was also just working with others and working with clients and then working with, you know, even the ninja community, watching that. You can see how how applicable it is to other areas of life. Is, is this speech available? Do you have it as a video or did you, did you never I do. Um, the only recording I have, I think is a really recent one. Uh, it was, uh, back in, uh, I don't know, I think it was two years ago. I did, uh, uh, I did an event, uh, with Jay Dyer and it really would have made sense for, uh, me to go first and him to go second. <laughs> he was really funny. Cause he said, uh, he was like, so all that like hope and inspiration that she just instilled, I'm going to oh. take all that away. And oh, that is a shame. That does stink. I hate that. I hate when just like, <laughs> oh, if I only had it to do over again. But I'm sure if you just show, if maybe you can give me. Yeah. And I mean, he was wonderful. I, I don't want to say, I mean, he did a phenomenal job. Oh, yeah. No, you. And yeah, he's hilarious. You don't so want to follow funny. that. Oh, no. He was following. He followed me and he did it because I wanted to film, I do a live stream for mine and he did not right. want his live streamed. Got it. Um, so we, we reversed it. Like, so he went after mm -hmm. me, but it was just kind of funny. And I mean, cause he's, yeah. he's a comedian. So he's like, well, yes. all of that hope, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. So get ready for the doom. Mm -hmm. um, but it was very, we, I think we did a great job of making it re relevant, like connecting yeah. the two. Cause really my whole message is just about taking personal ownership of your health, personal sovereignty, and, you know, I feel that in a lot of ways, that's what I did through physical training yeah. and that it was able to carry out to other areas of my life. So that's really what I spoke about. And the, the aerial is just to show people what's possible when, you know, nobody thought it was. Yeah. So I just did combine the two. And then he did, you know, a, like a speech all about the, the elites, but I do have that video. So, yeah. Okay. So let's call this a break. Okay. <laughs> and do you want to actually take a break? Um, I, we can, I'm good. Either way. No, I don't need to. Okay. okay. So I'm going to write down. Um, okay. So, so here, here's the thing where, where I knew like vetting Courtney Turner that I understood what happened. I understood <laughs> like you did not get recruited by the FBI or whatever. Something yeah. else happened because I'm looking at your Facebook stuff and I did it by year. Like I started at the okay. beginning, it's like 10 years and you posted a lot. So there was a lot. Yeah. To I used to be much more engaged. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's Facebook. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's <laughs> over, but so you would see like, oh, now I can do the ribbons. Like now I can bench press this. Now I'm like doing whatever. And, uh, and it goes and, like, at one point it's like, if you were a puppy, which puppy would you be? And then like mm, halfway through 2020, it's like masks don't even work. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I see what happened. And then after that, it's just like, oh my gosh, can you believe this? Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Oh my gosh, it's not even true. Oh my gosh, look at this, look at this, look at this. And, and just like, you just see like your, you know, the scales fall from your eyes and you're just like, well, I'm just not having this. <laughs> and, and that's that. So I want to know about 
like that moment and in like hand in hand with that, just a little bit about the politics, because there's absolutely no, I mean, the only political thing around that time or ever I saw like prior to knowing you is a picture of you like getting a, at a book signing with Ann Coulter, I think. So, okay. So I had a long interest in politics. I mean, I started a board for school choice when I was in sixth grade. I was 12 years old and nice. I was like, yeah, um, I'm now not a fan of school choice because I realized this is a Trojan horse, but. Oh yeah. Just... The charter schools run by Condoleezza Rice, like exactly. or championed by Condoleezza Rice and the council of foreign relations. I know, I know. Yes. Uh, I will caveat it though. Just my whole reason for doing that was because I went to a, uh, I grew up in a town that did not have a high school. And my only option was this one school that was a horrible school and it was not a safe school. And yeah, other huge schools were actually, country. yeah. And other schools were actually closer in proximity to me. And yeah. I had friends who went there and I didn't understand. So I was advocating for public school choice, which I think that actually does kind of make sense. I mean, you're already in the public, the government system. Well, it depends on where your, where your taxes are going. If your taxes exactly. are being contributed to them, then you should be able to go to whatever, you know. But well, my taxes don't even get into policy stuff. Yeah. It's uh, everything's a scam. Yeah, the, the whole thing was, and I mean, now I'm advocating, really, I've been like going to the Senate speaking on school, against school choice. So it's wow. kind of Wow, I knew I you were at the Senate, but I didn't know why. Wow. Well, I Me, went wow. to talk we'll about We'll have to talk about that. We'll talk about point. that. I, yeah. yeah, I went to talk about the NAC first I was invited to do a presentation yep. and then I went back to do a thing on school choice and I'll probably be back on that but um so I had a long interest I mean I was on the debate team you know that was all political um I I definitely was always kind of interested in politics when but in the acting world you know the entertainment industry like most people were not aligned and not interested in what I had to say um and I lived in New York City I mean it was really pretty uh far left you know, and I did not really align with a lot of people or the industry. So I kind of kept quiet. You know, I mean, I was never one of those people who didn't like if you asked me what I thought, I would tell you. But right. I didn't go out looking for the argument. So well, it was I didn't pointless. It. I grew up in New York. I grew up not, you know, on the border of New York and New Jersey. And my parents, yeah. they were not Republicans, but they were conservative. Later, I right. would call them like liberal, uh, libertarian or classical liberal. Sure. But uh, there was never any never ever ever talk to people about politics like it would be we were it was just no one wasn't a democrat well i learned well, the, i mean mm -hmm. maybe not but i didn't we didn't talk politics because we were seemed like we were alone yeah well i learned really the hard way because i remember as a kid my dad was very vocal i mean i grew up listening to rush limbaugh on my way home from school every day um my dad came to pick me up uh, from my friend's house in cherry hill and it was a far drive. And they, of course, just wanted to be nice and like welcome him after he's now going to make another drive back home. And my dad gets into a whole conversation about Clinton. And uh, they actually came to me and said, it is time for you to go. And I was never allowed back. So, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, I learned wow. pretty early that like that might not go over quite so well. I actually got, uh, you know, penalized academically. I remember uh, in history class, it was the first time that I confronted a teacher about it. Oh, I'm not I I've told you this. Yeah. yeah where um, I got a B minus on a history paper and there was no red marks on it, like at all. So I'm like, that's not a great grade. Like why? Right. You know, what happened? Yeah. What, what happened here? And she said, well, you didn't praise Fidel Castro. And it's, and I just like word vomit. I'm like, he's a murderous dictator. What was I going to grade? <laughs> and she was like, well, that's why you got the grade you got. 
So, I mean, they were very overt about it. Yeah. And when I was on the, the debate team, they were very, like, it was very obvious. They did not like my stance. Um, so I, you know, I wasn't really like foreign to this idea of, okay, maybe we pick and choose where we speak. Um, but at some oh, point. Oh, see, when- now that's the part of the lesson I didn't learn. <laughs> like we didn't talk about, but I have been a loudmouth. And I, I will just add, I had a, an experience like that in seventh grade where we were learning about the Civil War. And I was like, but why Why didn't they have a right to secede? I don't understand why. I mean, regardless of what they were up to, why, you know, why? Right. And the, so we had a class debate where the teacher made me the South and everyone else the North. And I'm like- Everyone else? <laughs> everyone, everyone else, for sure. Everyone else. Wow. And uh, And I'm thinking like in retrospect at the time, I was like, yeah, whatever. She's just messing with me. But in retrospect, I'm like, but the South lost. Like you guys had had the force of history, the official narrative on your side, and still it needed to be like 30 to one. And I still think I won just with the question, like, why were they not allowed yeah. to succeed? And uh, so I, I, they absolutely don't like the that. But I never stop being mouthy. And boy, I've had a lot of problems over the years because of that. <laughs> Dang. And it's just because I'm stupid, not because I'm like, well, I won't stand for it. I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. I'm right. You know? No, no, not smart. <laughs> well, I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, eventually what led me to 2020 was really, I learned about, you know, the the struggle sessions, the Maoist struggle sessions. And I was like, I don't want to be part of the problem. Auto critique hasn't worked so well for them. Um, so maybe I should not uh, continue that path. But I was quiet for a very long time, especially in New York and then in L.A. But then in 2011, um, someone invited me into Friends of Abe. So I joined this is like the quote unquote underground Hollywood conservative group. Is it like Abe being a Republican? Abraham Lincoln as a Republican? Exactly. And uh, yeah, it was a fellowship organization. As as Jeremy Boring says, you know, it was so it was so secret and so underground that, you know, that was on the front page of The New York Times. But but, so I joined that and uh, I had and I I dated a pundit who so then it was kind of pretty public where my views were. And he connected me with politics. Because they would interview him a lot. And he would be like, actually, every now and then he would say, well, actually, Courtney knows more about this subject or has more, you know, more passionate about the subject than I am, or she has more ideas on it. Like, you know, depending on what it was. But of course, it was politics. So it tended to be things that I was, you know, pretty interested in. And so they started interviewing me and I ended up writing for them. And that was back in 2011. So I, it's not like I was completely foreign to you know, voicing my opinions. But I, then when I was going back into, you know, I, when they disbanded at some point and then I was more involved in the entertainment industry, quieted that down for a bit. And then 2020 hit. And in 2020, I got fired from both gyms that I was working at. And I can't prove it, but I'm 99.9% sure it was over politics. Just when you look at the timeline of how it happened, Um, I, so I found myself like, you know, bored, alone, depressed, everybody's wearing a mask. And because I'm hearing impaired, I actually still depend a lot on nonverbal cues and lip reading. I really didn't realize how much I still depend on all those nonverbal cues until all the coping mechanisms I spent my life developing were suddenly stripped from me, you know? Um, so I, so that was really, really frustrating and it just felt very dark. And I remember I was actually supposed to do a poll competition, my first poll competition, uh, two days after the lockdown started. And 
that was canceled. Oh, and I bet you put so much work into that. Man, you've had a lot of disappointments. I know. (laughs) Uh, So much work into that. And I really was devastated because that was, it was not like, so I, I don't know what people's impression of pole was, but like, I know people have a thought of like, and there is exotic pole. This was essentially a gymnastics routine with two vertical bars. Yeah. Instead of horizontal bars. I mean, it was a, I worked hard on that routine. Yeah. That's it was a three hard. minute, three minute and 15 second routine. It was a, you know, to, to be doing like that kind of high intensity. It was, it was hard, but so that was canceled. And then I had a bunch, it was, I was just starting to line up a bunch of uh, speaking and performing events. And that, you know, that's really hard to break into too. And I had done some that were like, on yes, Zoom. I was wondering how you get all this because I only became aware of you through your podcast mm-hmm. over the past couple of years right. and to see you with such high profile speaking engagements, understanding how to navigate that, how to book it, how to even just logistically make it happen, pay for it. I always wonder, I just feel like it's obviously you have a lot of experience. That's why it looks to me like you were just, you know, put on the scene with a bunch of like tools that <laughs> I don't have, but it isn't because you, you know, it's are telling me about the-, the ways that you've developed those skills over decades. Yeah. Decades. Right. That That's the running joke. It takes a, a decade to become an overnight success. Nice. Um, in my Very case, well like several decades. Well, know? I'll never, I'm never getting it because I'm I just... I, I don't, well, I don't, I just even don't feel have like that. I'm there yet. You know, I'm just, well, you'll I'm get still there, on though. my path. Yeah. Because I'm first still of all, working. Because you are willing to invest the time, money, and effort to do what it takes and you have the ability. So mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that if you keep plugging along, you will get wherever it is you want to go, especially because unlike some of the other endeavors you've been in, this one is actually more under your control than. Yeah then you might think you really don't depend on anyone to like put you in a position or to produce your show or whatever it's manageable. So I've full confidence in you. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) definitely for sure. But I did want to understand like where you got the skills that, that uh, put you in that top tier position. And I feel like it's just been a long journey. It's been a long journey. Mm -hmm. So you got those, uh, those opportunities to speak, but you couldn't, you couldn't take them up because they're, and I I will just add this. It's really interesting because I've looked at this over the past like year or two with the podcasting and it is really just interesting. This is when, you know, uh, it, your like worldview does kind of get like impacted because I feel like there is, it's hard not to think that there is some kind of a creator. There is some divine force. Cause when I look at my path, it's like, they all at first seem so disjointed. It's like, you know, an athlete, uh, you know, psychology, philosophy. I mean, all these things look so disjointed and disconnected. And then you look at what I'm doing now. It's like all of what I did paved the way of what I'm doing now. You know, as much as, you know, I like Uncle Ted's writings and I feel like technology is going to destroy humanity or at least our souls. There's just a couple of things like this ability to be truly autonomous as a creator in a way that's like, um, you know, comes from a place of like the nobility of man, like the philosophy, the brain, the soul, like all the things that you can put into something like this. And plus my experience uh, with my mother being sick and dying and the people like the outreach that I experienced from people like I've never met physically, but mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, these, there are a lot of like really good 
people who truly love us. And when yeah. my mother and I asked her, like, people want to pray for you, what, what do you want to tell them? And she said, I said to my listeners, and she said, tell them I love them and to pray for world peace. But I was like, tell them I love them. And I was like, she loves them. Like, she loves this. Like, she loved seeing stuff like this. She loved, like, yeah. knowing that people were connecting. And I, so technology, like, it's it has bad, Bless but it's a limited encouraged. hangout. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a limited hangout, but you can really be creative and you can make connections and and it's in your control. And I think that that's, you know, that's powerful. It's so powerful. So yeah, so there was 2020 and I found myself, uh, I think the, the first day of the lockdowns, I people had always, you know, wanted me to do something with my story. I, you know, actually Steve Bannon had pr prosed my story. He said he was going to bring it for $250,000 to- See, That uh, kind of stuff, lifetime. like that's sketchy. Like that guy's sketchy. I, <laughs> fair enough, but- But uh, actually <laughs> you do talk, and I've done it too. I've definitely shared the screen mm -hmm. with people. I'm just like glowing, glowing. But, uh, but you got it. I mean, I'm not confrontational. I'm like, and I want to talk to people. And I'll tell you a lot of times when I'm on the screen with somebody who- is sketchy in my mind. I don't like call them out. I'll just say, Hey, what do you think about this? And then I hope that the listener understands what I'm doing, which is this is the information you need to make your own assessment. And yeah. I get a little hate mail, like who is that guy, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but you, you definitely do not curate people based on your, you're not giving them an imprimatur that you are have vetted this person and you should trust everything they say. Like you're definitely not doing, and that's the way to go. That's why I don't believe yeah. in YouTube, like advertising censorship, my, yeah. you know, up or down, like let's not have the curation function together with the interview function or the advertising function. It just doesn't, it, the responsibility for that is too great. So, okay. So you're yeah, uh, I mean, I rubbing shoulders with sketchy folks. Go ahead. Hey, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes you can get them to reveal so much more. That's too. what I do, but yeah. you gotta, you know, I have an intelligent audience and not everybody always catches every little thing, but of course, um, yeah. they do. I try to give them what they need, but yeah. Okay. So Bannon so, wanted to do. Yeah. Now? And I mean, that story is like really, uh, and when you look at it, the history of it, it's really not nearly as sketchy or even as like fantastical as it might seem. It was a, he was peddling a skincare line and my mom happened to be very good friends with the woman who was creating the skincare line and uh, she happened to be there. And uh, so he- and These was, are Republicans, right? So these are, there he, was there any- I, There was no political involvement in this. Okay. Bannon was peddling skincare. Like this was, I mean, he's, yeah, this was okay. not, there's nothing political about this was years ago. Uh, right. This was at this point, it might That's be 25, funny. 20 years ago. And yeah, he, he was, was just, he actually was hitting my mom up for, he was trying to get her to invest in a skincare line. <laughs> like, and she was like, no. He's been sketchy AF for decades, but uh, he, yeah. You like, know, he was like in the failed Iran hostage. Oh, yeah. No. It was at Reagan's inauguration. He was like a attache to the Admiralty, like that guy's whatever. Oh, I know. But at this no time, deal, he was but... trying to get into the film industry. And so he's working with as a salesperson oh. with Lifetime. Yeah, and I mean so this, that's what. Yeah. So yeah. that's what he was saying. He was like, "Oh, I could pitch this to Lifetime, and I'll pitch it for a two hundred fifty thousand dollars deal." Uh, you know, I ended up saying no because they wouldn't talk to me. Then wouldn't talk to me. Lifetime wouldn't talk to me, and it was just this go between with my mom. And I was like, "Well, if you don't have the ownership of your right, the rights to your life story, like what do you have?" Yeah, that's really how I felt. Good point. 
Yeah. And I was like, I, I feel like like that's, that's like everything. That's your life story. Yeah. So um, if they had talked to me, it might have been a different thing. But no, nobody talked to me. And he was trying to do film. And so that's I had another run in with him back in 2011 um, because he was a part of he, he would come to a lot of the Friends of Ape events. And uh, I think then he friended me on Facebook. And yeah, I now that is him. a connection that seems organic, not like that you it wanted, totally- but like I can see how he would definitely be there. Yeah, and it was totally organic, and I, I he reached out to me, and I so he friended me, and I was like, oh, I don't know if you remember, uh, you, you might remember my mom. And did he? Like you had, and you, yeah. Every time I brought it up, he's kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, say hi to your mom, <laughs> maybe. You <know? laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I think he does, but yeah. So he, but he was trying to do film. He did film for a while. It was that that was you know what he was into, and uh, he was working in the film industry before he got into politics. But of course, he was starting to move his way into there with friends of a Abe, and I think a lot of those connections did pan out for him. I don't know. I mean, I'm okay. I'm, but right. That that so, seems likely. So I yeah, yeah. So then I so I was going to write, and I just found myself too depressed, and I had a beautiful white screen staring back at me at the end of ten hours, and I realized that to write like a blog or no, I was going to start writing my story. But oh, I've never okay. really been able to do it because it felt like I am going to start writing. I've already outlined the chapters. I am going to start writing a book, but it's not my story. It's something else. Um, so I'm going to start pulling back a little bit on the frequency of podcasting so I can make some time for that. Um, but I, but at that time, yeah, I was thinking my story and I just have not been able to do it. It's, I think it's just too, it's too hard for me. It's too close. It's too personal. It feels like. I don't know. Uh, I'm not ready yet. But um, I, so I ordered 11 books that day and I decided it would be a great opportunity to read. (laughs) And so I started reading and I, the more I read, like I started sharing some of my thoughts and my, you know, uh, mostly in like stories on Instagram, but people were arguing with me. And then I started posting like you know, medical journals, the masks were really driving me bonkers more than anything. I mean, the lockdowns were awful. I mean, I would go like an hour and a half to drive to go for a hike so that I could see a friend's face and have a conversation. Um, and uh, I had like clients who wanted me to train them on Zoom. And I was like, this is absurd. I had a couple of speaking e- events over Zoom. And I was like, this is just like, it is dehumanizing. So dehumanizing. Yes. Uh, so I, that was really frustrating and yeah, so people started suggesting that I start a podcast and, uh, I, uh, yeah, like the idea of it really terrified me and I knew nothing about podcasts at first. So I started doing some research and, uh, then, then it dawned on me. I could have naked face conversations, even if it was through a computer mm-hmm. interface. And yeah. Oh, that's super fun part of it. But so, yeah. What was the transition point between what i'm please correct me if i'm wrong but yeah. uh, i would describe let's say you were a conservative republican and then and then what or, or have you always been a classical liberal and it just me you know it's not you who've changed but like your like your understanding of the overlays from conservative to republican to libertarian to truther to whatever like tell me about your relationship with yeah so my father politics. was definitely a I, I didn't know it at the time, but he was like a hardcore neocon. And I think I grew up being told he was a conservative Republican. 
Um, but you know, in hindsight, he really, and so it's interesting because when my dad was getting sick and, you know, he was much older, um, and I was starting to get much more in, you know, through friends of Abe and writing for Politichicks, I started doing, and actually that paid, that, that taught a lot of skills too. Anne Marie, who was one of the founders of Politichicks, uh, she taught me a lot of those, like just really simple things. Like this is how you hold the microphone. And like, you know, with the, I, I wrote for, I wrote some articles for them, but I did a lot of on-site interviewing with them and she really did take me under her wing and she's she's wonderful i i love her so much um so the neocon thing uh, it seemed to me and i grew up in new york in the most i've told you this before the most jewish county in america and the only kind of non-democrats i remember knowing their politics about were when i got into the honors classes in my high school it was like uh a Chinese immigrant who did not speak English, a, a waspy kid who ended up going to Yale, me and 18 Jewish kids. And they, some of them were neocons. And so it was like my first experience with quote Republicans. And I remember being surprised. Like I didn't think there were any Republicans cause I hadn't, you know, grew up like in the Irish part of town. Right. And, um, you know, it seemed to me it was just because of the pro Israel stuff that was, you oh, know, that the origins of that was like Irving Crystal and mm -hmm. that um, because I have a book called Neoconservatism, the Autobiography of an Idea by Irving mm -hmm. Crystal and how he basically invented neoconservatism so that he could shape the foreign policy viewpoint of a very malleable and unqualified American population. Yes. Well, Arguing the World is another it's a great documentary kind of all about that. Arguing too. the World. Yes, I highly recommend it. So was uh, that your, your father's angle, it, do you think? Was Israel know, really important? You know, I don't think so. I mean, you would he was know. definitely, yeah, he was definitely. You would know. Well, he was, but that's not, well, it's not what he led with. So I really don't right. know. I mean, he was, being pro-Israel was kind of like a, a sidebar. I mean, he was pro-Israel, but I didn't feel like that's what, I really feel like he was a neocon because of Rush Limbaugh. I mean, right, okay. hardcore, well, like. That's mm -hmm. just a. You know, and he so he became my parents were actually Democrats. Um, but then it, when I was very little, he they became it was a because Carter, my mom had to wait on those gas lines and she was constantly trying to take me to the hospital and she didn't know if she would be able to make it because she didn't know if she'd have gas. In the wow, car. and so that was devastating for them. And then my dad was an entrepreneur and he was always being regulated out of business. The, the government was yeah. always clamping down on him. My dad and too. shredding, yeah. you, you, right? Yeah, so, lost so everything. They, yeah. My mom said that they were like, well, we're going to take a crazy shot on this, you know, wild card Reagan and see if that, that's any better because it can't be any worse than this. Right. Uh, so that really was, and then, yeah, I think he became a hardcore Rush Limbaugh fan. And so he followed a lot of these, and a lot of these media personalities really were neocons. I mean, you know, yeah, it may have been the Bush era. So later than I'm thinking, remembering where it became a single issue thing. Yeah, I think the neocon Republican thing that was about Israel was a Bush era, right? Not Reagan. So I think it's a little bit. Later yeah, than, Reagan really wasn't so much yet. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'm not remembering that right. Is, but I mean, that wasn't like the thing that was discussed most often, you know, my home. It was, right. Yeah. yeah. I, that seems valid. And I think yeah. um, that's different from the single issue voter thing. And yeah. yes, the Rush Limbaugh. I, you know, like, I mean, I, I think say, he did a lot of good. But yeah, he was what I was saying, <laughs> half the time I disagree with him and the other half the time he's lying. 
So with Raj, like half the time I did agree with him, but I knew he didn't. He was just saying that to get people like like Dennis Prager out here is like that too. It's like I, I totally half the yeah, time I, I feel that way about Dennis. Unfortunately, yeah, he's got so much great stuff, and then he comes out with things that are like we've just, just like no. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. yes, but Rush. And when I went into radio, the guy, the coach, one of the coaches asked me, "Is like, who's your who's your favorite talk show host?" And I was like, "I don't really listen to too much radio, but Rush is obviously brilliant." Like, and I, I tell my yeah. kid, he's one of those examples, like Nirvana, where the creator of the genre is always has been, always will be the best. Yes. Yes. Maybe I'm wrong about Nirvana, but I'm right about Rush. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a Nirvana fan, so I'll, I'll take that. But yeah, so I, but it was interesting because my mom had made a comment uh, that, you know, when that much later on saying, well, you're actually a lot more conservative than your father. And now I kind of realized why she's, I don't think she knew why she was saying that. But now in hindsight, I realized because really he was a neocon, which really isn't conservative. Um, but so I don't know. I thought when I started my podcast, I really started off as very much like a Republican thinking I was a conservative and I had What did you month- like as a politician? Sorry. At that point, like, did you like somebody who, who did we have, who did we have fighting? I don't know with? that I've ever liked anybody, but okay. I will tell you, I campaigned for Romney and you know, that was a, I, I really, although he was better than Obama, I will say, or maybe, maybe not. They were both pretty awful. Whatever. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely a shame moment. But, what uh, difference? The only thing is that good for him. He lost because he's probably not a murderer now. Right. He would have had to have become a murderer, which, you know, you can't wish that on anybody. No. So, I mean, I don't know that I liked anybody, but I was definitely, I went into it thinking like, if we just get the right people in office. We can fix this mess. And, Ron Paul? Uh, you know, okay, so Ron Paul is really interesting because, and knowing what I know now, I know how deceived I was about Ron Paul because I really liked Ron Paul. And I remember when I was in New York, I was, uh, I was seeing a guy who was a huge Ron Paul fan. He He's wrong about almost everything else, but he was really right about Ron Paul and the New World Order. Like, he got all of that stuff. He was total conspiracy theorist. He loved uh, Alex Jones and, you know, but he was really far left on most things. So it was weird. He was like a Bernie Sanders kind of Occupy Wall Street It just is impossible to pay for everything and still have freedom. Exactly. Yeah, this I tried to explain this about the school choice argument. But somebody, if you got free health care, they're telling you what to put in your face. Right? Totally. Yeah. So uh, so it didn't make sense to me, but he kept telling me about Ron Paul. And so I started looking into Ron Paul and I actually really liked him. But my dad kept telling me, oh, well, he's great on like, you know, fiscal matters and a lot of things he's, he, he has right. But his foreign policy, he's just Looney Tunes. I mean, he's an isolation. That's exactly what they would say. Literally crazy. Yeah. At my and, radio I mean, show, people used to screen out Ron Paul supporters as callers. I was like, they're the only interesting people. Like, at least they'll give you an argument. Right. Well, and I'm like, now that I've done the research on Tavistock, I'm like, they literally just like the term conspiracy theorist was weaponized by the CIA in document 1035-960. Tavistock weaponized the term isolationist. Right. Because they didn't want to get Americans to engage in the First World War. Yeah. And then they would say non-interventionist. Now, the original term, which George Washington, I think, used was he was a continentalist. Yes. Yeah. Which is the only, you know, it's just rational. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you would like to have your... Uh, you know, borders be allies. I mean, that kind of makes sense. And that was an interesting point, actually, this total tangent, but that was an interesting point about uh, in the Putin interview, because he said, you know, 
we, we share a border with China. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that was a very interesting point that he brought up. But, yeah, right. I, I think, you know, Washington makes sense. Continentalist does make sense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I now in hindsight, I think Ron Paul was on the money. I think he was fantastic. I think he was really, really right. And I think that's why they had to criticize him and ridicule him. Well, and that's find why something they, to, yeah. they had to hijack his zeitgeist and give it to Trump. Yep. You know, exactly. they just, they gutted it of the and content. Trump is not Ron Paul. He's really not. He's not, uh, the, he's not, I mean, I'm not uh, criticizing. I I love MAGA people. They have their heart sure. in the right place. And he definitely was permitted to bring yeah. them all together. Whereas Ron yes. Paul won Iowa in 2012. He won yeah. Iowa in 2012. And that was not revealed until after I the know. RNC. So that just, you know, makes me sick. And I've seen people like, oh, he flashes the Mason son. His wife's a Mason, which means he's a Mason, whatever. I, you know, I, mean, can't be Masons. I don't know, but it doesn't matter to me. Like, I understand the highest level of Freemason thing, but I'm just saying by their deeds, you will yeah. know them. Like I, if he's right. a limited hangout, he's the greatest limit. He's a, the greatest limited hangout of all time. If, if, if they have to give us, if their limited hangout is we need to restore the constitution, I will take it. I Me will too. take it. Uh, yeah, and, I'm with you. I'm yeah, with you. so you could say whatever you want. You have to be more specific than like what I don't even know what the signs are. I, don't I can't even. Yeah. I think that's the Longhorns. Oh, <laughs> UT. I, I can't even remember. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, no, so, I think yes. he's great. But I, yeah, I started off, and I, you know, the thing I kept saying in the beginning was that I felt like the Republicans were behaving as controlled opposition for the left. But the more uh, podcasts I did, I. I started to, and the more research I did, I was like, no, they were created to be controlled opposition for the left. So my, I think I tweeted this pretty recently, actually. I said that, you know, people think of ideology, you know, like class, like classical liberal, Republican, conservative, uh, Democrat, you know, all these different terms, socialist, Marxist, whatever, all these labels. And you think that they have, that they're uh, philosophical constructs. And to be fair, they have some philosophical roots, but philosophical thinkers often don't, aren't exactly 100% line. This is a, it's much more nuanced. And I think what happens in practical application more often than not, what I see is it's really, it's just target audiences for marketing. And that's really what I'm seeing. So I want you to expand on that a little bit. And I think yeah. it may fold into my silo idea. Like okay. they just have silos and you know you can do Fox, you can do CNN, but you can't always have the Fox, you know, you can't, some ideas are okay for Fox. Some ideas they don't allow on Fox and the same thing for CNN. And I've actually seen that in writing where like writers have said, like the CIA vetted my book. I feel like it was Alfred McCoy. And they said, you can write this, you can write all of those things, but just not all in one place. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. But it's not just that. It's more like a, I think part of how uh, narrative operations work. So people identify as I'm a conservative, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm yes. a whatever. And so then there's buzzwords, you know, yes. there's marketing and they yes. can target them yes. for these narratives and they'll fall right in line. Because, right. And, and they can sell them. I'm against you. And they, yeah. yeah, they sell them different brands of the exact same product because we're all exactly. drinking coffee. Everybody exactly. in this country, you have to drink coffee. You can't, you, they won't be productive enough. Everyone has to drink coffee. You're exactly. never getting the not coffee. Right. So it's just whatever coffee, are you an espresso drinker, instant coffee, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to get into the, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um. So I want to, okay, well, I don't want to, I don't want to leave just yet. So okay. can you classify 
Can you tell me right now if you have a political or ideological description that mm-hmm. you think uh, portrays you or you can't I even think I'm probably work? most closely aligned with like some kind of hybrid of conservative and classical liberal. I think that, you know, that's what's a probably... conservative. What's the difference? Well, I, I think the difference in conservative is, you know, the whole idea of trying to like conserve something. And I, yes. I do like the idea. of conser- Yeah. I would like to conserve at this yeah, point, conserving the constitution. Yeah. So restoring it. Yeah. That would be. So mm-hmm. maybe you'll appreciate an observation I made, which is, when I was confused by this idea of what the right was or conservatives in yeah. England versus America. Oh, yeah, yeah. Until I realized that in England, it's the, to conserve is to be a monarchist, yeah. which, you know, isn't the worst thing in the world. I mean, there now it certainly is, but just theoretically, it's not the worst thing in the world. Right. But for them, a conservative, you could say it's feudal. You could say it's uh, yeah. aristocracy, you know, but here to conserve is to conserve liberalism, exactly. you know, capital L liberalism, yeah. which, you know, I don't want people to misunderstand. I mean, classical no. liberalism, which the word liberals now is a total inversion and high oh, yeah. of intentionally, just of for course. clarification. Okay. So, so I understand what you're saying. And, but I want to understand now you, you decided to get into podcasting and let's say that that was, let's say three and a half years ago. Uh, it was like, so what I did, I didn't air my first one until January, 2021, but I spent six okay. months recording and I, I reached out to people and I told them that I may never air it. Um, that I really just wanted to have conversations and oh, <laughs> I wanted to have conversations <laughs> and, uh, Samson gets jealous after two and a half hours. I'm sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been two and a half hours. Um, so yeah, I, I, felt like I wanted to have conversations and see where it went and uh, that I would record them. But, you know, for them to know it might not air that I really just wanted that opportunity to, and people were very open and people seemed to really enjoy it. And I found it very cathartic because I've been so isolated and I couldn't see people's faces. Yes, of course. Yes. Do you have those? Would you ever reveal any of those? Release? I I might have some of them. I'd have to go back and like, it's like now I'm at. Make it a premium product. Right? Yeah. Maybe. I, I mean, you got to pay the bills, right? I mean, you I are trying to pay we the bills. Really, right really, really got to work on that. Yes. We are really trying to figure that out. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'd be open to doing that. And we are starting to do some like recycling the classics. So maybe that could be a way to do it. Those would be the old, old classics. So, but. so at that time, if you spent mm-hmm. that time doing that, which is typical of you, a real investment at, mm-hmm. at, a cost of time, effort, yeah. and money to yourself. Yes. You obviously felt like you were starting down a road of something that was, you know, you were really committing. What is it I that was, you were committing to? Why so at, and how at are you that time? I think it was really more for me than anything. I was so depressed. Mm. And I mean, like everything had kind of just like I really didn't know what I was going to do. Were you disillusioned at all by how quickly the entire world capitulated to a bunch of bullshit? Yeah. I mean, I remember at the time and we're really not very close anymore, but she was like my best friend. And uh, she had said to me and it was over the COVID stuff. She just kind of dropped me. But um, she did apologize. She did admit that it was completely her fault. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But she she had asked me, she doesn't sound like you're like scared of this at all. Like 
And I said, no, I'm not. And she's like, why? And I was like, well, I just don't really buy it, first of all. But I was like, and if I'm wrong, I just don't, I have like a very strong feeling that even if this were legit, it's not the thing that's going to take me out. Like with all of what I've been through in my life. And regardless, like, live for your time. And, if you, I mean, and that's what I said. I, I, I said, I finished with that. I said, and if I'm wrong, then it's my time. Like, <laughs> but I'm not going yeah, to just spend the rest of my life in your fear. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I really wasn't, it wasn't, because I remember having a conversation with my mom about this and she had said like, well, I don't know how that's going to be successful. How are you going to do anything with that? And I, <laughs> I said, well, it might save my life. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really kind of the mindset I went into it with. And at, at that point, it's not like, I mean, the world was shut down. It's not like I was going to go look right. for another job. I was right. training people on Zoom. Yeah. And the few That's people I could yeah. train were in my apartment. You know, I was like, right. come over. We'll sneak you in. Yeah. Don't wear a mask. And like. That was terrible. That was a terrible, terrible. Yeah. Thing. So I like, I went to some other people's houses and trained them. But, you know, so I was making a little bit, you know, here and there. But it's not like I was going to go out and get a job. <laughs> Okay, so so, so I, let's. I really did that just to, I was like, I need to have conversations and I need to feel like. At that point, I've been reading so much. I was like, I want to talk to people about yes. this stuff. You know? Oh, yeah. The in and the out and like balancing that over time. And, you know, there's yeah. different phases of that. So let's let's look at 2021. Yeah. What is your life slash work, including podcasting? What is your mission statement in 2021? And what is it? Is it the same now? So it, it, the crux, like the cornerstone, I think, is really the same. I think back then, it's just much deeper now. Back then, it was really about like personal sovereignty and ownership of free will. I felt like the free will of humanity is at stake. And, you know, and I still maintain that. I think that what we're in a battle of is not Republicans and Democrats. I mean, although I think they they operate through them. Um, but I think what we're in a battle of really is a people who want to enslave humanity and uh, put us into a transhuman leading to a post-human world that they control via like an AI hive work mind that they programmed. And I think that the, then the, the, the opponents are really the, the pro-humanity, people who recognize that we were endowed with free will. And, you know, I obviously people argue with me, well, you know, some people don't believe that there is free will and there's different, you know, if you don't have a biblical worldview or an Eastern, but you know what? Actually, I, I actually reject that because I have really started to think about that. And when you look at how people operate, they operate as though they have free will. And so, yeah. I just had to tell you, Einstein, I read Walter Isaacson, who's like definitely a fed, whatever, writes great biographies. And uh -huh. well, I should say very readable biographies. And he wrote one about Einstein. And it was a few interesting things. I won't get into the real highlights, but one of the things I believe I remember from that is that Einstein was so um, sure there was no such thing as free will. He would not accept, he, he predicted the downfall of quantum theory because he said it would imply free will, which of course I think it does. Yeah, I think so too. That's so, fascinating. Isn't that interesting? And even if it's not, now where would I get that thought if it wasn't really actually that I read it from him? But even if I'm wrong, it is an interesting concept. But yeah, I, I'm yeah. under the impression of that. So here's a guy who thought there was no free will, but actually led him to probably wrong answers, which is a good way to, yeah, your thesis is incorrect. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, I think there's a lot of questions about Einstein, but um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't get into it, but we, yeah. there's like 15 things I've written down that we're going to get into. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I really, so the only difference now is just that I've gone much deeper and I think I was a lot more superficial in my early, you know, my early podcasts were, they were more politically oriented. I'm less politically oriented now because, you know, ironically, my podcasts were more politically oriented then. Now they're less so, but I've actually taken more political uh, action, you know, like I've been to the Senate twice in the past month, Um, you know, so I've actually gotten involved in more specific kinds of things, but I don't have a lot of hope in the political system. So, yeah, and I've been more interested in like geopolitics, philosophy, the, the broader scope of, yeah. Yeah, I may come full circle on that as well, like as an anarcho-capitalist for so long and I'm now a philosophical agorist and all of that. Like I I just don't really, like I said earlier, like I just don't get into the policy stuff too much. But I do think if there is something specific that yes. you have mastered and you can you have a forum like you do, or even if it's in your local town and you can make yeah. that difference, I think it's really worthwhile to do that. I find local it, is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. And or even if it is something something big and national, but you happen to get a spotlight on it and point out the flaws in something like school choice or the NAC thing, that natural asset commodities companies. So um and just calls attention to it, it can it can awaken enough people that the powers that be have to stand down for the moment. So I do think that and that's real. We did it. So Yeah. 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 So that's real power. And, um, I think it's worthwhile for me. I think my natural skill, I feel a little guilty about it, but like this just daily news analysis where I'm like, Oh, it's probably going to take people a little while to figure this out, but I'm telling you right now, pattern recognition. I think that's what this is. Hopefully you guys can do something with it. I feel a little lazy. Like I'm just blah, blah, blah ing, but but the geopolitics are very fascinating. Yeah, no, I think it's great. It's not my skill at all. Like, and I think you you're great at that taking like the day to day stuff. I don't find it as interesting, to be really honest. For me, it's like whenever I talk about day to day stuff, it's usually to draw it to the broader like historical context. You know, the kind of Absolutely. how do we get to today? Yeah. What what fascinates me about it though, and I'm not sure it always uh, translates. Actually, I did a show yesterday about the guy Ecuador. I don't uh-huh. know if you know anything about the guy, the president of Ecuador. No. Oh, the guy, it just, he's like a glow stick. Like he just like, he's, you know, a (laughs) glow stick figure. Okay. Um, Yeah. But anyway, so it was just so fun to like pull that apart. And what I love about like, I read the wall street journal and the Mm. propaganda cues are so blatant. It's so like fascinating to me that the smartest guys in the room are reading this newspaper to see what it says. And, you know, that's just very fun for me because I just, I find it like so laughable once, once, once you, you know, the scales are pulled from your eyes and you just like, yeah. it's like somebody sent out an old moon, like um, an old spacewalk thing that was on like eyewitness news and you uh-huh. can practically see the strings like holding stuff up. Like it's so hilarious. Like you almost see the boom and it's just so absolutely preposterous. No wonder they lost all the photos. Right. So I just, that I do think is, is a way to stay informed, but upbeat. Sure which is yeah. so critical to me. But yes, I agree that that kind of like deep analysis is way more fascinating. But uh, but with your 
like the geopolitics and the Tavistock stuff and the and the like the the very big picture agenda items and of course the true yeah. power of uh, the true nature of power on Earth sure. and the universe. But you because you bring to that so much of that uh, of the philosophical underpinnings right. that they are building their plans upon. Yeah. That's what people, it's like psych experiments that I think they've been doing for a hundred years yeah. and, you know, their ideas of, uh, you know, the existentialism or whatever it is that they, yeah. that, that drives them, which is hard for like a, a Catholic girl from you know, Rockland County. I'm just like, but Jesus, like, you know, aren't we just trying to be good? You know, like, I want to go to heaven. So like, that's not where they're coming from at all. And it's very no. hard for me to, to really see into their psyches, which yeah. I think is what you do and adds a ton yeah. of value. A lot of people try to do what you do, I think. And just the volume, both the breadth and the depth of what you accomplish is it's just, it's hard to believe it's just like a one woman show. And I know, I know know that it isn't. I know there's a man behind the woman um, who helps us so much and what a lovely person he is. So uh, yes, but that, so, so your mission statement has a, it hasn't really changed. It was it to expose the truth. Like, let's just say after it was, you know, aside from being like an outlet for you. Yeah. Does it expose the truth or is it to explain things to people? Is it, you know, what is it that you feel like you're, you, what drives yeah. you? Cause there's a lot of podcasts out there. What drives oh, yeah. you to keep delivering a lot of content every day? Well, I don't sincerely say like expose the truth because I feel like I'm on a journey just like probably all of us are. So a lot of it is seeking. And, you know, I, I'm hoping that in whatever I'm seeking and discovering that I can share that and that that will shine a light. So really, I think that's really my mission is to, to shine the light, to spawn investigation for, from other people. And for people to start to figure out like what resonates for them, what, you know, what dots they can connect, because when you hear something from somebody else's perspective, then it's, it starts to, or even just to point, like, just to literally put a spotlight on something. I mean, you know, things like I, I'm going to do a, uh, I'm still working on uncovering it because it's like nobody's talked about it. There's so little, but there are these like little organizations and just to even mention it starts to open a can of worms for people that, you know, where they've intentionally been covert, you know, it's intentionally been hidden. So I don't know, but for me, really, it is about free will. It is about personal sovereignty. I think that I'm now, and and I think I'm going to do a podcast on this, but I've been looking at like Plato and Aristotle, and I kind of feel like there's a psyop there. Oh, you're breaking my heart. Sorry. And again, the Catholic thing is important because I think of like the Middle Ages uh, that the the church, you know, the cloisters and the abbeys and stuff were kind of a platonic situation. And then Aristotle came in, I think maybe potentially to justify kind of capitalism or whatever. I don't know. But the church adopted. I'm a big fan of Aristotle versus Plato because I like the individual responsibility. And, you know, that's uh, if you have the... You have to be, you have to have that responsibility if you're the one with the ability to act. Sure. So I, uh, I'll just give you the really brief uh, overview of what I'm thinking. So I think that Aristotle has been kind of like spoon fed to, uh, 
the uh, yes, they were awesome. Uh, has been spoon fed to the uh, Republicans or the right wingers as being like you know very right wing philosophy yes. ideology, and I think that Plato has been touted as like the father of communism. Yeah, and and I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yes, and when you really look at it, I love what Aristotle did with virtues, and uh, you know uh, the, so, some of his work. I you know I very much subscribe to. But the reason I bring it up is because in, in terms of what my mission is, I think of it and people who think of Plato as being the evil, sinister father of communism might not like this so much. But if you understand where I'm coming from, I think what he was actually doing is he was working within this framework of these, you know, the parasite class that's been around mm -hmm. for millennia. It's certainly I mean, back then it was the mystery schools that he, you know, and the 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 you know, descendants of the, of them, like the mystery schools were kind of the predecessors of this, you know, parasite class that they were dealing with. A lot of what he had to do had to be covert because you couldn't rock the boat. I mean, these were the people in power and times are very different then, you know, we didn't have the internet then, they didn't have, even have the printing press really then, you know? Um, so I, I think that what he was doing was trying to create an academy that where there could be esoteric knowledge revealed, but through a potential meritocracy, as opposed through bloodlines and rituals initiation. Very And I, I don't know, but here, so the reason I bring that up is because I feel like that's kind of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to, who are interested, who have the, who want to put in the work, who have the curiosity, who have the ability to start looking at things, to connect dots. And, you know, I'm hoping that by my shining the light, that will create some sort of a academy, if you will, um, you know, of personal, personally sovereign, you know, uh, yeah, people. <laughs> so you bring in your philosophy background and also your art background, mm -hmm. which is going to be unique the way I like to bring, you know, math into right. the language yeah. part is I, I think that's a maybe that left, right brain. Yeah, totally. You know, that is a unique thing. But uh, so. I'm interested in the Plato thing as a journey going forward. I don't have the foundation to really mm -hmm. use it this way. So maybe mm -hmm. you, you will, you can direct me. But so as a hardcore libertarian and capitalist all of that, mm -hmm. like it, we are trained. And I think this is where it's subversive is that we, we are kind of, I look at the government at the monopoly on violence and say, okay, it's illegitimate to the extent that it, curtails our free will any anywhere beyond where it hurts other people. But the older I get, the more I realize that, okay, yes, the government, the monopoly on violence doesn't have uh, authority over my moral world, but, you know, I do have a moral responsibility to, I mean, I'm not going to say my community, let's start with my family and then start mm -hmm. with my neighborhood and then say maybe yes. my church or my parish, you know, I do have that. Now, what is that? It's unenforceable, but does that mean that I don't have a true responsibility like that? And that's where I feel like I, I, you know, maybe understanding Plato a little better will help mm -hmm. me understand how those things interplay because it's that that's the problem with the libertarian stuff. It's, it's very easy to, except from a black and white point of view, you can do a lot of analysis. You can write huge books on economic theory, but, but right. without the surrounding, you know, soul, yeah, you're, you're going to have problems. It can be exploited. 
Well, and that's an interesting thing when you look at Plato versus Aristotle, because Aristotle was much more materialistic uh, just in his worldview and his philosophy. And, uh, you know, it was very empirical, materialist, uh, that that was his metaphysical background and or uh, presuppositions. And uh, um, so why is it the foundation of the Catholic Church? Yeah, exactly. So like Plato was kind of the opposite. Everything was... uh, you know, very spiritual, like everything was about this, you know, he, it, he very much alluded to there being a creator and that, you know, that's why forms were the way they were. So I really want a book, hopefully it's mm-hmm. already written called Aristotle, Plato and the Catholic church. And I want it to be good and not like a subversive, you know, <laughs> misguided. Aristotle, Plato and the Catholic church. Okay. Yeah, because Plato, I feel like the platonic model was the model of the monasteries i see what you're saying i I can see that you know yet aristotle is the you know the philosopher something else i can help them so anyway so i'm all right so now i think we need to wrap it up now i I would you can't hear me now i can okay that was weird so my I knew i i I was okay going this long with you even though it's probably the longest podcast i've ever done in my life because (laughs) You're just a marathoner. Like you are. I knew you could handle it. I didn't even have to ask you. You have to go to the bathroom. Nope. No. Do you need any water? No, I can go several days without drinking. It's like, no. Um, So, okay. So let's, I really like the idea that this is a three-parter. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So Angus is saying that his listeners were impressed with your knowledge. You're saying you had a good time. That's awesome. Yeah, they were awesome. Ah, thank you. Uh. So Angela Adams got some hot sports opinions that I, I'm i not going to bring into this conversation. But someday, okay. Courtney, I would love to talk to you about actually about religion. Okay, and, yeah. um, you know, I just I really would be interested from your philosophical point of view. But let's take these last few minutes. And, yeah. you know, what to, what do you want to what would you like to tell us about, you know, what you're doing, what you hope to do, maybe how people can help. But um you know, I'm satisfied after mm-hmm. having like gone through all your stuff. And it's a very, very kind of you to like, I thought it would be <laughs> super fun to go through this process with you of all people, because like you are so, you just don't get offended like this. Oh, this is one thing I wanted to point out about like your ability to deal with Twitter and um mm-hmm argument like you've you've like white knighted me which i think is very funny because i'm terrible i hate arguments i hate it hate it hate it I'm like i don't like them either completely the wrong business and i i lack confidence because i do feel like uh i just you know i never did debate i'm not sure i've got all the arguments i always assume mm-hmm. somebody else knows something that i don't know and i want to give them sure. the benefit of the doubt so i'm not really good in the arena but you are you you're fast you're confident and you're quite often, if not like every time, like you're right. And you have a way of bringing that. Is that because of your debate experience or what? Wow. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't oh, yeah, feel that at all, but. Uh, oh, it's definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think debate definitely helped a lot. I think some of it's just my personality. Um, yeah. My dad always told me he thought I should be a lawyer. Yeah. So, yeah. I think. Lawyers I, do have that. Yeah. yeah like when you talk to a lawyer, like they are good like that. A litigator. They're uh-huh. just amazing, but it's experience. It's a lot of experience. Yeah, I, I guess it is. Well, I spent a lot of time arguing growing up. I mean, I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> he says, Jack Burton says, it's ironic because when I argue 99% of the time, my arguments are Monica's talking points. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But that's different. That's just, you know, I'm happy to give you information. But if whoever you were arguing with started yelling at me, I would just like, ah. <laughs> I don't like that. Well, I try not to get into arguments. I'm not a fan. I'm not very confrontational. I really don't like confrontation. Um, but if it's a, if it gets into it, like, yeah, then I probably I'll go. In fact, I've, this is something I've had to kind of rein in a bit because I, when I was younger, people would think that I was like really being, uh, I don't know what the, like contentious intention, yeah, yeah, like right. that I was, you know, antagonistic and yeah. I was like, oh no, no, we were just having a, yeah. a debate and they'll get hot. Yeah. Like and I'm like, get pissed, oh, no. especially if they start losing. And I was like, oh, I was just explaining it to you. Know, yeah. Like, you have to be right all the time. That's what one of my sisters said. You have to be right all the time. I'm like, doesn't everybody always kind of think they're right all the yeah, time? Right. Like, I don't Why know. would you even argue if you think you're wrong? Like, yeah. I mean, it's like religion. It's like, well, you, you think, you know, you're right. I'm like, well, of course, like we're, of course, like if you're practicing your religion, you think it's right. Right. So, <laughs> although I'm not even like really sure. I'm sure I like practicing, but. Who knows? But anyway, I, I, fair enough. I get it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and I would come yeah. out afterwards thinking like, oh, we're friends. Well, that was fun. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, they hate you. Yes. I know. I've had that. Like, I'm like, I understand why people hate me. Like, not a lot. But like, someone's like, oh, like his wife hates you. I'm like, I totally get that. Totally. I, my sister said not too long ago, she said something, you know, she would always tell me how it's so intense. And uh, I said something. This time I said something like, yes, I think you're just going to have to deal with it or something. And she's right. like, you finally owned it. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, well, what I'm owning is you. I think she's yeah. you're probably right. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, maybe, but yeah. I'm sick of apologizing for it. It's like, yeah. I'm intense. That's, that's it. Yeah. Like, so like you, you don't like it. I'm sorry, but that's who I am. But like, I have, I have noticed that like, if you're, so when I used to be an investment banker and a lot of my peers yeah. were men, oh, basically yeah. all of them, but their wives weren't investment bankers. So yeah. Like if I was dealing with women in investment banking, it wasn't that it wasn't, there was no issue. People right. didn't feel intimidated at all. But the, but people who are like in a different world, if you are like fucking Joe investment banker, you know, you're at dinner with the nice lady who's, you know, waiting at home. Like they did not no. enjoy my, <laughs> I'll tell you while you're wrong. You know, that was it. <laughs> Listen, honey. <laughs> I can imagine. So, yeah. Not great. Not great. And in mm. retrospect, I reject, I kind of regret being, yeah. uh, you know, too intense, let's say. I'll, yes. I'll, I'll borrow. <laughs> I, borrow I yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, I think I get you a little better yeah. now, Courtney. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to well, know like you. the different, you know, your journey, your path. It's been, it's super fascinating since like basically the first trimester of your life. Yeah. <laughs> to now, and actually, I think that what's going to, you know, what's going to come for you is going to be super, super cool and exciting. And you're actually, you're, you may be quite powerful, which is dangerous. <laughs> well, well, thank for you. You, I, you know, I, yeah. it's, it's dangerous for them. So it's dangerous for you. Yeah, for me. Ooh. Oh, I, I'm not 100% sure what you mean by that. That sounds a little scary. <laughs> well, I'm just a little worried that if you are, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not even necessarily saying physically, but that, you know, we all get taken down, whatever. Yeah. But if you actually like, so for me, one thing that's, there are two things I think that are dangerous, um, make you a danger to the state. One is to have uh, insider information, like um, mm -hmm. firsthand knowledge of something. Yeah. 
Uh, that will get people like rubbed out. Um, but the other thing is to be like a charismatic influencer. And that I think mm. like they'll just cancel you, you know? Right. You know, so I just, I, I think that you're uh, a charismatic influencer. You really know what you're doing. And like when you're going to move the dial on something like natural asset companies or mm. charter schools or something that is important to the powers that be, they may let it slide, but they, you know, they may come at you with bigger guns, like just whether mm. it's trolling or canceling right. or, you know, financial problems or, yeah. you know, I just, what are you, are you worried about that? Um, I mean, I can't say that it never crosses my mind, but I'm honestly, I just feel like I can't live my life like paralyzed by fear. Yeah. So I really, I try to live more like mission oriented, you know, like what do I feel called to do? What do I feel like? Where, where am I supposed to be? Where can I do good? Where will I be inspired? Um, and hopefully that combination will lead to a positive outcome. Yeah. Um, but I really, I mean, I just look at everything I've done. That's always been kind of how I've, I've directed. It's never been, uh, I just can't like, I, I can't do that. Cause then I, I'll just be paralyzed. And yeah. Yeah. So well, I can, I can see by what you do that you're following your passion. And I also yeah. feel like that, uh, what you're not, not prioritizing over that is, uh, paying for it. So yeah. I would I like need to work you, on that. <laughs> I mean, really, because what you're doing is not is uh, like your effort. Yeah, uh, it, it's just it, it doesn't prioritize the commercial aspect of of this kind yeah. of thing. So how yeah. can people who really like I would definitely encourage if someone's going to had a big lump sum to give to a person, don't give it to me. Join my little, my subscription on iTunes, my premium $5 a month thing. That you should yes. do for me because I just want to pay for my production. Yeah. Um, and the commercials are super annoying. So that's commercial free. But yeah. for you, I feel like people could literally like stake you and their and their money would go to good work. So what, what do you say to Thank that? How you. can people help you? And what are you working on? I really appreciate that. Well, I am going to start working on some. We, we want to do some membership type things like that. But in the meantime, we did redo the website. It's CourtneyTurner.com. So like Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R. And, you know, if you want to, you know, buy products, that, that, that does help me. But I did put just general donations. So I have a give and go. So you can just donate outright. Um, you can do a uh, Venmo. And then I, because I'm such an idiot that I can never seem to remember this, I'm going to do, uh, I have a PO box also. So if you're inclined oh, to snail, nice. Yeah. You could just do snail mail and just send me, uh, like a, you know, either, you know, financial support, kind words, yeah, whatever. How you pay for, you went to the Senate to speak. What? You went to the Senate to speak. How did you pay? Who pays for that airfare? Did they pay for oh, it? Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, I It was the state Senate. Okay. Yeah, so we drove. <laughs> okay, so, so that, that was you came out to L.A., did, did, you know, yes. did you pay for that? I did pay for that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's somebody has very for, expensive. Yeah, it's yeah. very expensive. And, I mean, for you to do that, that you put the effort out, I, you know, I'm yeah. in support. Because that was another thing. Thank I was you. like, if I find, you know, if I, like, vet Courtney Turner and there's those like something under that rock. Like, what am I going to say? Uh, but I fully a hundred percent support what you're doing, your work, people. I, I think that, you know, we're lucky to have somebody like you on our side Thank and you. I just have complete confidence in your ability to discern 
and to represent and and that's just it's it's rare thank you well the p.o box if anybody is listening and interested it is p.o box at 680093 franklin tennessee 37068 i know some people today would prefer a snail mail kind of uh, oh yeah situation um and yeah i mean we're kind of like i really want to go like full force this year uh, we do have a couple of other like you know potential outlets and uh, hopefully those will be able to monetize um so yeah we're really hoping this year will be uh, the, the year that we can do that so that we can keep going and i am going to write a book so hopefully that'll be something i can sell that's great yes yeah. let's so that's i always something. encourage if someone's writing a book buy them put it on your shelf exactly it, it, most of the time they're worth reading but even if it's just to finance the person like because i actually think that's how obama gets all his money like george Soros buys fifty thousand of his books every year and throws them in the ocean or puts them in the library and that's how they get them like i think books are the way to get people money so these are too and, and i have been... a good book so yeah i mean i've been working on the concept and i uh, you know i'm not going to give it all away right now but i i had actually bought the url a while ago and i thought that for sure it's already out there but i can't find anything so it's really going to be my term i'm coining it and uh yeah and i uh, i have i've already started to outline it so that'll be fun it's just you know kind of dusting off the the writing it's been a while for me so but yeah i'm hoping that that will be and then you know there hopefully people will buy that and that will help fund things too so but yeah but in the meantime people can definitely they can buy me a coffee too uh, yeah. Yeah. At CourtneyTurner.com. Jack says, reading is for nerds, but the books on my shelf make me look smart. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. I have so many books on my shelf. It makes me look messy. So I had to put my screen back up. Well, my, the, the lovely man behind the scenes, actually, he's always helping me organize all these their, their, oh, like, that's category. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I organize. need one of those. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, really thank you. I didn't realize you took so long. Sorry. <laughs> Hang out with you. Well, I mean, I hope you don't mind. I'm wondering what who you blew off for that last hour because you're usually back to back to back. And I am actually back to back. I've got All I'm right. talking to my friend Clint at 1.30. But uh, yes, Courtney, thank you so much for being here, for joining us. Um, send me your links. I'm going to play you my new outro. And uh, until next time, thank you all for coming. That was Courtney Turner, and I am Monica Perez. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.